Z-O-M-G. This is the very last show I'm going to be doing in my 40s. Do you know the next time I'm going to be doing a show, all you'll hear is me sounding like this. It's Van Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, 22nd of September 2016. And we had some great calls tonight. Uh, first and foremost, the question of rights has shown up quite a bit here and there in this show. And I've had my swings at it, and I don't know if I've ever really encapsulated everything that I wanted to talk about with rights in one conversation, but here tonight we did. So somebody was calling in talking about human rights, and uh, I took my big <laughs> intellectual baseball bat to it, Robert De Niro in touchable style, and uh, hopefully nothing was left standing except clarity. And the second caller wanted to know why it is that government intervention in the economy or socialist policies inevitably frog-step the population towards totalitarianism, and um, we went through a whole variety of scenarios that makes that move forward, so I hope that will be helpful. The third caller wanted to know, why is it so easy to get propaganda into the minds of people? He was talking in particular about sort of anti-Russian propaganda coming out of the West, and we went through a lot of the uh, etymology of how people end up being so susceptible to propaganda, and I think that was really, really helpful. And the fifth caller was a woman who wanted to know, how are you heroic in the modern world? How does one become heroic in the modern world? And we had a great conversation. She was a fantastic caller. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope it will be inspiring for you. It certainly was for me. So, Stefan Molyneux, please, please, please remember to come by and support the show. Don't consume without reciprocity. You can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. All right. Well, up first today, we have Sean. Sean wrote in and said, The founders of the United States claimed that we have natural rights and that they come from God. Atheists reject this logic because they reject God's existence. As you have stated, most atheists lean towards socialist ideologies and against the quote-unquote noble lie. However, perhaps it's not a lie. You have stated that rights do not exist, but aren't rights just those human properties derived from biology in which one claims and exercises in exclusion of every other individual? These properties include vocal cords, thumbs, and brains. Do we not have a just claim, aka natural right, to use our properties to communicate, use tools, collaborate, and think? Are not our natural rights written in our DNA? That's from Sean. Well, hey, Sean, how are you doing tonight? Very good, Steph. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, and hopefully, as I say, doing good. All right, so do you mind if I just give a brief sort of intro to the the, the new listeners who've come in because of the Brangelina video? Sure, uh, sure. Who might know that rights don't exist. What are you, crazy? Um, so rights, there's lots of different ways of looking at them, but basically they're considered to be moral claims that are universal. I have a right to free speech. I have a right to own property. I have a right for freedom uh, to freedom from violence. I have a right to be unmolested if I'm not aggressing against others and so on, right? So th there are these ideas of rights that, you know, the Declaration of Rights and so on, and, and there's human rights, uh, there's this all over the place. And I, I dislike it all. I dislike it all. Because rights are a positive claim upon others, and, and originally as defined, there was sort of a negative claim against others. Like, do what thou wilt, thou though harm no others, right? I mean, do, do what you want as long, as long as you don't infringe on other people's persons or property, right? The basic common law, common law two rule, boom, boom, <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, two rule, 
uh, life, which is keep your promises, your contracts, and don't initiate force against others. Um, they were sort of negative rights. Um, but the concept of rights has been hijacked uh, over the past uh, century or so, maybe a little bit longer. So now rights are positive claims to the resources of other people. I have a right to be educated. I have a right to health care. I have a right to an old age pension. I have a right to all of this, right? So they have turned from shields into swords. And this very malleability of rights, the fact that they could turn from something that's supposed to protect you against other people's aggressions into an excuse for your own aggression using the state to transfer resources from other people to you, that to me indicates that there's something fundamentally wrong with the entire concept of rights. Rights be wrong if they can be reversed so significantly. Like the concept of science generally does not you know, scientists don't gather together and say, let us pray for the answer, right? Science can be corrupted as it so often is, as everything is by the state and so on. But the concept of science doesn't admit its own reversal. Uh, and the concept of math doesn't admit its own reversal. And But the concept of rights has been used as that which was a universal shield against other people's aggressions and uh, duplicitousness. Now it has become something that is used to justify, like as it used to be a shield against the government. I mean, the Constitution was written to keep government small. And rights have been used now to become a giant jetpack on the rising size and power of government. The government has to deliver all of these rights to people, uh, rights to, to a house, right, to shelter, right, like whatever it is going to be. And so if the concept has been reversed without many people even noticing and without violating the original idea or without violating the idea of rights, like no one said, no one came along and said, well, We've got these idea of rights, but they're really negative rights, right? They're like, thou shalt not, right? Uh, thou shalt not use force or fraud against me. So what we want to do is we want to switch it. So instead of it being something which diminishes violence and is used as a shield against others, we're going to use it as a sword to increase the use of violence in society by creating these positive rights and obligations, you know, for healthcare, education, roof over your head, whatever it's going to be, food. Uh, and so... But they didn't say, well, the problem is that the word rights is so well-defined, we have to use a different word, or at least add something to it, right? So social justice warriors recognized that the word justice had a kind of hard-edged, masculine, steely kind of resolution to it. So they had to introduce the girly word social in front of it so that they could corrupt it. And like the unholy baby of the feminine social having sex with the masculine justice is... <laughs> Like Rosemary's baby, um, but with a flamethrower. So the fact that the word rights could be so perverted to be the opposite of its actual meaning and didn't need to have a new word invented to cover it up or even just another word uh, saying, well, we're changing the concept of rights from defensive to offensive, from shrinking government to expanding government, from giving you a shield to giving you a sword. The fact that they could do that with the same word to me indicates that the entire concept of rights must have had a giant problem to begin with. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and you know I agree with you. the The term rights is absolutely abused. It's used incorrectly, but at the same rate, I do believe that we have rights, and that you know that you could call them negative rights if you like. But we have certain actions that we take. We have vocal cords, and we can use those vocal cords to speak. And because those rights have been recognized and they've been written down. Uh, by philosophers and as well as 
uh, philosophical politicians, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that has done a, a lot of good for our society. And that well, okay, of, hang on, but, but sorry. So I'm sorry to interrupt, Sean. But people say, like you, they say we have rights. Mm-hmm. Where? Where? Where <clears throat> do we have them? In what? Where do they inhabit? We have a vocal cord. You can check it under Freddie Mercury's nodules. There was a vocal cords of the guards. So you 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 have vocal cords. You have eyeballs. Yes. You have skin. You mm-hmm. you have these things. And they can be sort of measured and, and located. When you say we have rights, yes. What yes. does that mean? <clears throat> okay, so. Uh, I hate to use this analogy, but in object-orientated programming, you've got these classes and you have objects and you have properties that the objects have, and then those objects also have methods. That's what they can do. And so, for example, we have the vocal cords and the brains, and when we use Let me just them, uh, hang on a okay. sec. And I'm really, really sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure everyone's up to speed who may not be object-oriented programming. Yeah, sorry. So you might have a big blob that rec- – like a big bob- blob of programming – that is um, an array. Mm-hmm. And you might have a property of that object that represents the array. Array is a series of numbers. Like, uh, um, Actually, no, forget that. Let's do a database. It's going to be easier, right? So you have a database where you have records, right? Uh, a record is a string of information, like in your the government database, your name, mm-hmm. your address, your age, your date of birth, and all that kind of stuff. And so you don't you, you want to create a layer of abstraction above that database so that you can do error checking and you only have one place to check because if everybody accesses the database directly, they might make mistakes and not check other people's rules and so on. So you create this big blob of code that represents your database. And you can say um, how many records are in this database. So there'd be blob count. dot mm-hmm. record num or count. Yeah, dot, dot. Right. there would be add new. There would be update. There would be delete. There would mm-hmm. be search. There would be index. There would be whatever it's going to be, right? Right. Um, and so, just so people know, so there are properties which are read-only in general, and then there are methods which are actionable, which do something usually to change the database or update the database. Does that make sense? That's right. That's right. Okay. Just so, so people know what we're talking about. Otherwise, everyone's going to glaze out. Well, maybe they glazed out anyway, but uh, they'll do so slightly less now. Go ahead. Sorry. And so, the definition of a right is that in which we have just claim, and we have a, you know, the ability to act. We have the ability to communicate. We have the ability to use tools. We have the ability to uh, use money. Lots of different abilities that are very unique to humans, as well as uh, abilities that we share with other people, like the 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 instinct to to defend ourselves and to survive and to live and to have children. Those are all rights. Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> oh no! You've just taken a big blob of things and said they're all rights. That's not a case, right? It's not an argument. So you said that. Um, a right is a just claim so it, against in the dictionary, others, right? or two others? Yeah, in the dictionary, I believe it says that a right is that in which we have a just claim. And I, I don't and, think that's a very good definition uh, myself. So that's, you know, that's just what I got from the dictionary. No, 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 I, I get that. I mean, but, you know, if, if, uh, if, uh, if the dictionary was philosophical, uh, we'd be way in the future and I'd be doing something else for a living. So, um, so a, right. so a just claim against others. So um, if so, you borrow um, my saucepan, then I can ask for it back. So I have a just claim. I have a right to my saucepan back. I have a just claim against you. But my problem with rights is that people are either going to honor them or they're not. Right? So if, if I lend you my saucepan, Sean, and you don't give it back, and you, you say, okay, well, you'll, I'll give it back to you, right, Steph. And, and you recognize, okay, knocked on my door, wants his saucepan back. I'll, right? So it's either something which sensible people agree on already 
or you're not going to give me my saucepan back. You're going to slam the door in my face and uh, make fun of me from the other side of the keyhole, right? So this is sort of my problem is that people either accept these rights, in which case there's not really much of a claim because you're going to give me back the saucepan anyway, or they don't. Now, what happens if they don't well, accept then, your claim <clears throat> of whatever, like return my saucepan? And that usually is the place where people say, well, then we need a government to force them to, right? <clears throat> well, uh, is it okay that we force them? For example, suppose that somebody's – I'm trying to speak. I'm trying to communicate so that I can make money and, and feed my family. And somebody comes up and uh, sticks a bag over my head or something. <clears throat> I punch them in the face. Is that okay? Wait, are we are we jumping from abstract definitions down to specific instances? Man, well, you're making me dizzy. Okay, I'm I mean, sorry. I'm getting well, the bends here. We're going so high and so then so stay, deep and then so high and then so deep. <laughs> but let's try to do one thing at a time, okay? So if we if we talk about the pot uh, and somebody takes my pot. Uh, do no, I, in this example, it's lending. Okay, so I lend them the, my pot and they don't return it. Do I have the right to use force to, uh, or you know, maybe I shouldn't use the word right. Uh, is it okay or morally good for me to uh, sneak in their house and take it? Okay, so the, the, if if you say I have a right to do something, most people when they mean when they say that I have a right to X, they're making a claim of a just or legitimate action without making an argument, and to me. Where do just behaviors come from? Saying, well, we have rights. It's sort of like saying, well, where did the universe come from? God made it. It's not an answer. right? Saying, well, I have a right to X, Y, and Z is a giant, not an argument. right? It's just um, well, it's I an can, assertion. I and and it's using the magic word right to pretend that you've answered something, but you haven't. Well, I can give you a, a more detailed you know, description of it. And that is that... Of what? Of rights? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, you know, it starts with Descartes, I think, therefore I am. That shows that we exist. <clears throat> Next, if we want to think, we have to have a brain, at least in the objective universe that we know about. So we've got brains. In order to have a brain, we have to have a body that supports that brain. And in order to have a body that supports the brain, we have to have some kind of uh, – you know, evolutionary process in which our bodies develop. They are able to feed our minds so that we can think and make decisions. And uh, with human beings, those developments, those evolutionary traits include the ability to communicate, ability to collaborate, use tools. And, um, and then there's more basic things, having children, forming families. <clears throat> if we do not exercise those capabilities in which we have complete control over ourselves, nobody else has any control over, then uh, we're going to die. And so we could say scientifically that we, if, if living and reproducing is a just thing, then we have a just claim to exercise our uh, <clears throat> properties you know, uh, as actions. Yeah, well, reproduction is a bit challenging because if you have reproductive rights, then any woman who denies you your reproductive right uh, is violating your human rights. And therefore, we have the old rape slash human rights uh, opposition. So I don't think that's particularly valid. Um, but what, what, look, what if, what if somebody says, look, I just, I just disagree. 
I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm just going to take stuff. Uh, might makes rights. I don't even care about rights. What I care about is getting the most resources for myself, my family, with the least possible effort. And because I'm bigger and meaner and stronger and don't give a good goddamn about this highfalutin rights crap that you've got spouting, I'm just going to take stuff while you sit there and write your little constitution or whatever it's going to be. I'm just, I'm just going to go and take stuff. I don't care about your rights. Um, well, this... I don't recognize the concept. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, it's the will to power, right? The Nietzschean uh, will to power. That's what matters to me. Uh, the rights are invented in, in the attempt, this argument would go, rights are invented as an attempt to instill guilt into those who are stronger and more powerful than you are. Because if you are the strongest and most powerful around, you can just do whatever you want and you don't care about rights. So rights is something that uh, is kind of like a blow dart to the, the neck of more powerful people, hoping that you can slow down their predations on you by pretending that they're doing something wrong. But people who have strength and power and will don't care about it. They're just Geng Genghis Khan style. They're going to go and do what they want to do and get the maximum resources for their own particular tribe or family or children or whatever. So if people just completely disagree with you and say, I, don't, I can, you know, badges, well, we don't no, need no stinking no. badges, right? I mean, <clears throat> so, you know, what do you say? Uh, yeah. Uh, just because we have rights doesn't mean that our rights do not compete with other people's rights or that, uh, our rights compete with other animals or other species for that matter. No, no, no. We're not going into other animals. That's okay, like let's, one let's thing stay at a time. So are you saying that rights can be in opposition? Yeah. So yeah, then they can't so. be universal. So then how can they be human? Right? So. If, if, if I have a right to – let's say the doctor has the right to self-determination, but I have the right to health care. Well, then our rights are in opposition because the doctor should have the right to self-determination, shouldn't be forced into doing things. But if I have a right to health care, then I or the government or some agency must compel the doctor to give me the health care that is my right. Are you saying that rights exist in massive opposition like that, where it's win-lose and only one person can get their rights at the violation of other people's? So there's different situations, and one of the situations is that we're collaborating, we're working together, we're creating a society voluntarily. And that, of course, is a situation in which uh, you, you would want to recognize other people's rights. But there's also the universal, universal fact that if somebody's trying to kill you, you can kill them back. And that's, uh, that what's, that's what universalizes it. I don't. <clears throat> I don't understand. You said that rights can be in conflict with each other. Nobody has a right to kill someone, right? To murder someone, right? Okay, well, there might be some situations in which uh, it comes down to competition. For example, there's the um, you're, you're in a boat with people, and uh, you you only have a certain amount of food, and somebody's got to die. So who's going to die? Is it right to kill somebody? Well, you can say no, it's not right to kill somebody, but maybe in that situation. No, 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 no. Listen, you can't use the same word for rights and right. Right being a morally good action in a particular situation, and rights being universal claims on the behavior of others. You, you, you we can't use those two words as if they're interchangeable. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's not and let's not get down into lifeboat scenarios because we don't even have a theory by which we can well, test lifeboat well, let's, scenarios. Okay, let's, get, right? let's talk about species, right? So two species, and you don't want to talk about species. Let's talk about hominids. Let's talk about Neanderthals. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> okay, want to but, talk about Neanderthals. Yeah. Come on, man. This is not the big moral issue in the world today. Is is how do we treat Neanderthals? <laughs> Come on, you, you've got to have bigger things or more immediate things on your plate. People to deal compete with, right? with each other. They go to war and they kill each other. This is a fact through, throughout history. And we've seen, you know, uh, uh, leaders like 
Cuba Con, or you know the the Cons, and we've seen Charlemagne, and we've seen uh, Edward of England, who have had tons of children, basically at everybody else's expense. They have taken the government. Yes, I just read. I just gave this whole scenario where people say, sorry to interrupt, but I just gave this whole scenario. We don't need to do it again. The scenario where somebody says, I don't give a, a rat's ass about your rights. I'm going to take what I can and accumulate as much power as I can. I don't care. I mean, your rights are meaningless to me. It's just a bunch of noise. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is that sometimes it's you have the right to kill somebody if they're trying to take away your stuff. But see here, you're just using the magic word rights. Sometimes you have the right to kill somebody. But what is a right? I don't know. Right you is, say we have them. I still don't know where. Well, right and is, something to do with, well, it's you need a brain to be alive and have kids. Well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, a, a, a praying mantis needs to be alive and have some sort of nervous system in order to have offspring. Do they have rights too? I mean, you know what I mean? Like it, yes, you're do. not planting a tree in anything that's called the ground. <clears throat> well, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, the, that rights have been something that have been, you know, very positive for the human species, certainly for America, something that, you know, I was taught about in high school. And that's because there's some kind of truth to them. And, um, as oh, far come on. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but first of all, the fact that it's positive for some people doesn't make anything a right. And secondly, the violation of original American rights, the original Bill of Rights, the violation of those rights has been enormously profitable for vast sections of the population, right? I mean, half of Americans don't pay any federal income tax. 60% of Americans get more out of the government than they pay in taxes. There's a whole military industrial complex, a whole bunch of giant corporations, multinational corporations that gain an enormous amount out of the existing political system through the violation of the rights of the general population, violating the rights of the unborn for to, to not be born into massive debt has been enormously profitable to politicians who wish to borrow from the future in order to give people the illusion that government can somehow create wealth, right? And, and by providing people more in services than they charge in taxes, they provide the illusion I guess like a cocaine dealer provides the illusion of happiness, they provide the illusion of plenty. But it's plenty by borrowing from the unborn. And so there are and, – and whenever you try and talk about limiting the government's ability to print or, or borrow or sell bonds or you know do all of the six million financial instrument-based thumbwhackery tarot card raping and pillaging of the next generation, whenever you talk about limiting that, people go insane. So it is enormously profitable and beneficial – for the majority of a population in a geographical region, at least in the short run, to wildly violate the rights of the unborn, the rights of the taxpayers. You know, like they always say, uh, they always say um, uh, on, on the left, oh, we're going to make the rich pay their fair share. Bullshit. Bullshit. The rich pay the vast majority of taxes as it is. And half of the people don't pay any goddamn taxes, really. And the majority of people get more out of government than they put in. That's called being a parasite. Pay your fair share. How about the 60% start putting something back in instead of pulling something out all the time? Pulling yeah, everything out absolutely. all the time. Yeah, I mean, right? I, so, so you can't, it's good for society. Well, no, I mean, if, if it was so obviously good for society, we would never have a problem with rights uh, or universality. The problem is that it's so incredibly profitable to violate rights that there is the, and the more people who obey those rights the more profitable it is 
to violate them, right? So uh, I've made this argument before, but it's been a while, so we'll count it as new, that if you're the only thief in the world, you have a fantastic time of it because nobody's locking up their houses. Everybody thinks they just misplaced something rather than had it stolen because you're the only, there's only one thief in the world. You're the only thief in the world. And therefore, it is incredibly profitable for you to be a thief. It's so profitable that somebody else is going to say, hey, I think that guy's taking without permission. And he's totally getting away with it. And he's incredibly rich and he'll never get caught. Because there's not even a crime called stealing because there's only one thief in the world and everybody thinks they're just misplacing stuff or it's being beamed up for experiments in UFOs. So he decides to become a thief and he be- more and more people decide until the profitability, like supply and demand, the profitability of being a thief goes down. Because people are locking their doors, they have police, uh, they have traceable stuff, they have uh, alarm systems, they have cameras all over their houses. They whatever. At some point, it becomes less and less profitable to become a thief and then you end up in a gallon song. Anyway... Can we talk so about- that, hang on, let me just finish this and then I'll, I'll be quiet. But, and the aspect of being a legal thief, right? Amateurs rob banks. The real thieves run the banks, right, in, in yeah. central banking scenarios. And so if you can become the legal thief, i.e. the government who can redistribute income uh, as uh, you see fit, uh, it's so enormously profitable that there is such a drive of biological imperative, right? Get get as many resources as you can with as little energy expenditure as possible, and there's nothing like the government for doing that, that um, the moment you start setting up rights and creating all of this, um, like Dungeons and Dragons rules of how people um, should be, you're ignoring the fact that the violation of rights is one of the most profitable enterprises in human history. So the idea that it's good for society as a whole, or, I mean, there is no such thing as society as a whole. It's like saying something is good for the jungle as a whole. Well, no, something may be good for a parakeet, something may be good for a toucan, something may be good for a dung beetle or a red-eyed tree frog or a leopard, right? But there's no such thing as good for the jungle as a whole because it's all a competing bunch of... um, win-lose organisms, which is how a state of society works. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. There's, you know, there, we've, we've heard of the state of nature and the state of war. I think there's a state of collaboration, the state of parasitism. parasitism. But as, as far as the money goes, so money, uh, because we do not know about our rights, that's why we're getting screwed by the bankers. Each of us, each person has the ability to count, and there's parts of our brains that allow us to determine things. And because of this, we can use money and we can uh, economize. We can check the prices and look at how much money we have and we can make evaluations. Without money, we wouldn't have the kind of intricate economy that we have. And I believe that there is a super organism that emerges from the use of money, where each of us uh, is basically a, a row in a database and that the monetary system is a information system, a database in which in which each of us physically implements it by holding tokens like coins or bills or numbers, and that from this we get something bigger, society that comes from that, and without our right to use money, we're going to be the victims of these parasites. But if we realize that we have the right to use whatever money that we want to, then we can emerge and we can be free. But if we don't know that we have the right, we're going to be victimized. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what any of that means, but I will say this, that you're using the word right, which we haven't defined. So what I'm going to do, um, uh, Sean, is I'm just going to give you sort of my perception of things, uh, and then uh, we'll we'll take it from there. Um, so I, we don't have rights. They're not attached to us. They're not like an appendix. They're not like a hair follicle. They, do, they don't exist in the real world. It doesn't mean that they're subjective. Numbers, the concepts, they don't exist in the real world. That doesn't mean that they're subjective, right? If you've got four coconuts in a row, the number four isn't sort of shimmering around them like some penumbra or some uh, uh, interstellar gas or something. So the number four doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean you can assign any number to four coconuts, like pi or, you know, whatever it is, right? Some negative number. Science, the scientific method doesn't exist in the real world, like a, tan like a tree does, but the scientific method doesn't. That doesn't mean that the scientific method is subjective. And this idea that if something doesn't exist in the world, it has to be subjective is not valid, right? I mean, so logic doesn't exist in the world. That doesn't mean that logic is subjective. So we don't have rights in terms of we, they're not attached to us like a physical property and so on. And so my solution to this whole question uh, is called universally preferable behavior. Universally preferable behavior is the uh, basic idea that if you want to make an argument for the behavior of others that is universally preferable – Right. It could be respect for property rights. It could be uh, not murdering. Uh, it could be not raping, not assaulting, not stealing from, and so on. It could be keeping your promises. It could be keeping your contracts. Let's say that you want to make some case for how other people's behaviors should be idealized or should be universally preferable. Well, then it has to be universal and it has to be prefer prefer uh, preferable, which means that they should choose it, not that they always do choose it, right? If you say to people, this is a healthy diet, that doesn't mean that they will. It just means they should if they want or not. doesn't mean that they will. And so uh, I've got a whole free book on this called Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. And if you want to come back and talk about this, we should you should probably. <clears throat> I've got that book, and, and I think that. You know, in order to no, no, no. Still in the middle of an argument. <laughs> Just saying that um, it may be maybe worthwhile getting into in, in more details. We can discuss what's in that book because I kind of take the swing. And universally preferable behavior, you can you can try and argue against it, but it'll fail because if you say, well, there's no such thing as universally preferable behavior, then you're saying there's a standard of truth that everyone should follow, and this argument fails that true standard of truth, and therefore I should disbelieve it. You're affirming universally preferable behavior by arguing against universally preferable behavior. There's no, and I'll just say UPB from now on, there's no rational way to argue against UPB without using UPB. And so when it comes to questions of um, how should people behave, well, it has to be universal. So for instance, let's say... Um, we have two men in a room. One, his name is Bob, and one, his name is Doug. And let's say that you have a, a UPB, universally preferable behavior, which says, thou shalt steal. Thou shalt steal. And let's say one of them has an iPod, the other one has an iPad. And they should, so they both should steal from each other. But this is impossible. Because stealing requires that you don't want the other person to take your property, right? If you're lending someone your iPod, then they're not stealing it from you. They're just borrowing it from you, which is different. And so it's impossible for both people in the same room to uphold the thou shalt not steal standard. Because if they say, well, everybody should steal, well, then Bob wants his iPod to be taken by Doug. But if he wants it, then it's not stealing, right? So this is just a sort of simple example of, of how UPB works. The same thing with murder and, and rape and, and all this kind of murder must be, uh, let's say rape must be you don't want the other person to have sex with you and they do it against your will and that's rape. So if let's if rape is a universal value, like everybody should rape, 
then it can't be achieved because everybody should want to be raped. But if you want to be raped, it's not rape, right? So it's just logical ways of, of working with it. And the book goes into a bunch of examples on this and self-defense and, and all this kind of stuff. And so that's a way of approaching how people should behave. It doesn't use the word rights. It uses the words universal. In other words, if you're saying this is true for all people, has to be universal to all people. Preferable, which means that there's something that's better than something else, i.e. respecting property rather than violating property. And it's behavior. In other words, it's not thought police, right? Because the thought is not manifested in action, can't be objectively proven one way or another, but an action can be objectively proven in one way or another through physical evidence or videos or whatever, unless you're in North Carolina. Anyway, so this is my sort of approach instead instead of saying well what rights do we have because as soon as you introduce the genie called rights everyone's going to try and grab it everyone's going to try and grab a hold of it uh, and use it for their own benefit right so um w- women single moms are going to say well my kids have a right to an education and my kids have a right to food and we have a right to health care because that's going to get them stuff for free right and so they're going to say i have a right to this and if rights are not really objectively defined and i don't think they can be uh then it's just going to be this kind of, like, you know, when you have a state at the center of society, everyone tries to grab the state and use it for their own benefit and screw their enemies and reward their friends and make money and escape consequences and so on. Everyone's trying to grab this ring of power. It's the same thing when you introduce the concept of rights, particularly when it's very ill-defined, as it always is. Um, whereas if you have something like universally preferable behavior, you can go to the, let's say, single mom says, uh, my kids have a right to health care or I have a right to health care or my family has a right to health care or whatever. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? That means that um, you have the right to use the state or use some mechanism to take resources from other people. But you can't just make that rule for yourself because for it to be virtuous, for it to be ethical, it has to be universal. And so if you say, well, single mom X has the right to use force to get resources from Dr. Y, well, then Dr. Y has exactly the same right to take those resources back or defend against, like, she hasn't achieved anything, right? So you have to create this imbalance where there's separate moral rules for various groups and people, and this is what this balkanization and fragmentation of identity politics on the left is doing to society as all. It's like Gene Hackman in the original Superman thumping down his cane on the glass over the map of California. (laughs) Hey, maybe California. It's the left coast. It seems to be kind of appropriate. So I would really, really be hesitant, Sean. In fact, I'd strongly advise you, if not downright urge you, to back away from the giant religious mystical subi mask called rights, because you are introducing a genie that ends up almost always being controlled by your enemies rather than accepted by your friends. And uh, it's like bringing a, a knife to a gunfight. You know, you bring rights and other people bring bigger rights and more rights, and it becomes a will to power. Who can define the word right to the benefit of their own group in particular? And society gets significantly fragmented thereby. But anyway, have a look at the book. It's at freedomainradio.com slash free. Appreciate your time, Sean. A great chat. Let's move on to the next caller. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Up next is Tim. Tim wrote in and said, Do you believe socialist policies, if pushed for long enough, will always lead the government towards totalitarianism? If so, what do you think the driving force is behind the move towards tyranny and serfdom? Tim has a few other questions, but we'll start with that one for now. Yes. All right, what's another question? <laughs> hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. How you doing? Good. Great. Great to be here. Okay, so let's look at this question. Socialist policies, if pushed for long enough, will always lead the government towards totalitarianism. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. And I think it was Hayek who, who said this years ago, 
in a book called um, The Road to Serfdom, which was actually uh, adapted into a comic book, if I if I remember rightly. Sure. But um, with, without a doubt, um, is there sort of any particular mechanism which you'd sort of like me to explain as far as how this occurs or why this occurs? Yeah, I wanted to get into it. I feel like there's a few that all kind of go with each other. Um, Did you want to start? Do you want me to start? So how would you like to take it forward? Um, well, uh, just a few of them would be just by virtue of what the government is. If we give it total top-down control, which is what socialism kind of would be, then what we're doing is making ourselves into state-mandated state mandated slaves. And so we already have ourselves in that position. And then on top of that, there's Mises' uh, price calculation problem, which causes mm-hmm. like shortages and all that nonsense. <laughs> um, you can go from there if you want. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the basics uh, is um, freedom is competition. Literally, freedom is competition. And so why does the government always want to take over education and healthcare? Well, because then you're helpless and you're dependent upon the government for the provision of those things. Right. And, and in particular where, you know, homeschooling or whatever is not or, or and in particular, if they take money from you for, for government education, whether you use it or not, or you should get you should, of course, get all your taxes back if you go to private school. But the government doesn't want that. So are you free to choose your children's education if you have to send them to the closest government school? Well, no, you have no freedom as far as that goes. When it comes to health care, if the government is in charge of your health care, you are helpless. If they say it's going to take you six months to get this operation and it's illegal for you to go and get it privately in your country or whatever, maybe it's impractical for most people, you are not free to get health care. You are dependent on the state. Now, in a socialist economy, jobs are provided by the state because the government controls the means of production. And there's some limited private ownership like toothbrushes and stuff, but government controls the means of production. Um, the factories and so on. And so if the government doesn't like you, if you do something that the government doesn't like, they can fire you. And then where do you go? Right now, if, if you have 20 companies who want to work with you and five of those companies really don't like you, well, you can go to the other 15, right? Freedom is competition. People need to be competing to put things in front of you that you can choose from. And if you don't have that choice, if there's only one big, giant, squatty, toad, jab of the hut, state avenue for you to get what you want, you're not free. You're not free because, first of all, the government is taking the money from you to pay for whatever it is that you're consuming. And therefore, you don't have that choice. You're not free to even maintain your own property integrity and choice about how your resources get spent. And you don't have anybody else who's coming along to say, you can choose me, you can choose me, you can choose me, all down the line. So an arranged marriage is where your parents say, or your elders say, you have to marry Betty. You cannot marry anyone but Betty. You can only marry Betty. And even if you choose not to marry her, you have to live with her and pay her bills anyway. Would anyone say that that person is free in the realm of romance. No, they wouldn't. 
So monopoly is tyranny. And the more the government takes over and provides monopoly services, the more tyranny you're subjected to because tyranny means you don't have a choice. And when the government provides services and elbows out all competition, you're left with one giant monolith. That's the only place you can go. It's the only thing. It's the only way you can get whatever it is you want to get. You're forced to pay for it either way. And nobody else is coming along saying, here's my choices. So socialism makes free will, for instance, largely null and void, at least in an economic and political context. And the reason why it tends to slide towards totalitarianism, there's lots of reasons why, but here's sort of one that may be understated, is that um, the moment the government takes over a monopoly, it has to ban the competition. Right, which is where we get our wealth. Right. Right. It has to ban the competition. Now, it either does that in a hard way by making it illegal for other people to provide those resources, or in a soft way by forcing people to pay for the government solution anyway. Right? So so if you want to send your kids to private school, then you've got to pay for the government schools, and then you've got to pay for the private schools, so it's like a double whammy. Oh, and then, of course, the private schools have to follow the government curriculum, so they're not really that private, not really that alternative, and so on, right? So, so there's, or they can, um, they can ban competition just through a soft bunch of, you know, it's really expensive to get a license, and you've got to go through a lot of regulations, and there's a lot of legal exposure, and uh, I just make it, it's not illegal, but it's functionally impossible. Because when the government takes something over, it turns it to crap, and anything that's allowed to directly compete with the government is going to cripple and undermine and put out of business the government, quote, solution, right? Mm -hmm. And so it has to continually expand its powers in order to grind away and reduce and destroy competition to its central provision of whatever service is being provided, right? Yeah, they're monopolizing at their own detriment, kind of. Yeah, so it has to, it has to grow. Uh, through through that standpoint, and um, people get dissatisfied, and they grumble, right? <laughs> and they are negative. Now, mm-hmm. if you grumble about a private business, you know, assuming it's not some libelous, slanderous, godforsaken thing, right? Um, some lie. If you if you grumble about a private business, okay, well, they'll survive, right? They go go to other people, right? Mm-hmm. But if you start to grumble about the government uh, business, they usually have much more of a problem with it because it sucks. Government education is terrible. It's mind-destroying. It's soul-destroying. It's humanity-destroying. It's empathy-destroying. It's intellectual-destroying. It's Mm -hmm. IQ-diminishing for sure. And it's absolutely terrible. Destroys motivation and creativity and the entrepreneurial spirit. It's terrible. And because it's so terrible... The pressure grows to change it, to, to, to say, let's have charter schools, let's have voucher systems, let's have something that's not this. But the government has changed and evolved to rely upon a steady stream of indoctrinated children growing into adulthood, never questioning the foundations of their society, right? Without control over education, government power becomes... incredibly expensive right i mean the slave who loves his chains is the slave you don't have to guard right the slave that's constantly trying to get away well that's 
an expensive slave, and all of your slaves are constantly trying to get away. Slavery doesn't work. So the government relies fundamentally and needs existentially 12 years of indoctrination of children. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't work. If they're exposed to a wide variety of different viewpoints and oppositional viewpoints and challenge, if they're taught how to think, if they're taught how to reason, how to process evidence, then government doesn't work. It doesn't work because people ask questions that are too tough. People ask questions that are too upsetting. The media is critical. The media digs in. The media finds problems. The media exposes immoralities. And the, the whole thing becomes way too expensive and difficult and unpleasant to manage. And so the government has to, like once the government gets control over education, then the government can grow. And you, you really could see that happening in the 19th century. And so once the government has grown then it absolutely needs to maintain that control over education because if it loses control over that education, it no longer has the indoctrinated row of brain-dead kids coming out who, I mean, they don't, forget they don't have the right answers. They don't even know the right questions, right? And if they can get you to ask, if they can get you to ask the wrong questions, they don't care about the answers, as the old saying goes. Right. So it has to control education and then it has to control free speech. Because there will always be people who question and think and so on. And the entire system relies upon indoctrination. And if that indoctrination is not present, the system collapses. And therefore, anybody who questions that, basic, the basic fundamental premises of society, which are almost always unconscious, well, it's dangerous. It's hate speech. What is it going to be, right? So it's always going to grow. And of course, um, once you have a giant money spigot called the state, right? Where you can walk into a room, you can make a speech and you can walk out a million dollars richer. Um, I think we all know <laughs> who we might be talking about. But um, once you have that, then people are going to start swarming towards the state because it makes much more sense and it's much more profitable to be in control of the state than it is to be in control of some convenience store or some business or whatever, especially when the government takes over more and more of those businesses. It's much more fun to be on the regulation giving side than the regulation receiving side. And so because there'll be a general tilt, right, you sort of think of a, a table full of marbles and you lift up one end, right, they're all going to roll down to the other end. When you raise the incentives to be in government and you reduce the incentives to be outside of government, then more and more of the talented, intelligent people slide in towards the state. And therefore, the state has to grow to accommodate all of the people who now want to live and work in the confines of the state rather than in the remnants of the free market. And so the state's going to continue to have to grow to find ways to accommodate uh, all of those uh, new people. And um, the other, the, the, but the, I mean, another reason, too, is that the government has to provide the illusion that it is giving you more in services than it takes in taxes which is mathematically completely impossible, <laughs> right? I mean, the government cannot give you more in services than it takes in taxes mm -hmm. because it is inefficient and it has massive overhead. Yeah. So, it, I mean, yeah, private, like private businesses can give you more in the long run than you invest, right? I mean, you, you buy a stock, an Apple stock at a buck, you're doing pretty well right now. <laughs> so, but, but that's because it's a private business with efficiencies and, and low overhead and all that kind of stuff. And so the state, though, cannot conceivably provide you more in services than it takes in taxes. And if it doesn't have the capacity to control currency, then it can't give you the illusion that it's giving you more in services than you're paying in taxes. Right? There's a couple of ways that governments love to do this. Number one, 
they'll say, oh, I'll take some money from you now, but don't worry, in 30 or 40 years, I'll totally give it back, <laughs> right? And then they just spend it, right? So um, they, that's giving you the illusion because you think the money's in some social security or old age pension lockbox, and it's not, of course. Mm-hmm. So the government will take money from you, pretend it's going to give it back later, and it won't. Or another thing it does is it sells bonds, right? And I think somewhere in Canada, there's like 75-year bonds. are <laughs> crazy, right? So it will sell bonds. So it raises, I don't know, however many tens or hundreds of millions of dollars by sending, selling bonds. And it spends all that money lavishly on the population. And it's 10 or 20 years down the road when these guys have retired that the money comes due. And then they rolled it over into new bonds. And right, it's all, it's all a shell game, right? And then they print money, uh, which gives the illusion that the government is creating wealth. Uh, in the same way that uh, I guess I could run a distillery by buying bottles of booze and adding water to them. Hey, look, <laughs> I've made new booze. I am a master distiller. And um, so it, it goes through all of this garbage to to give people the illusion that they're getting more out of the system than they're putting in. Uh, and that diminishes people's resistance to it, right? It's like, well, it seems to be working very well as long as you ignore the national debt, the unfunded liabilities and all that kind of stuff and the inflation. So... All, all of that put together is why the government just continually is going to end up uh, growing. Like the government is either growing or it's shrinking, but it's never staying the same. Um, two things that I wanted to run by you. Uh, the first being you touched on the education system and I just wanted to mention, well, I wanted to ask if you ever read like any books by John Taylor Gatto. It was a New York City teacher of the year for like three years and then he stopped saying that he was tired of hurting children. And then he went on to write a few books, one of them being called An Underground History of American Education. And in that... And goes, also Weapons of Mass Distraction. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and that... Yeah, he, not, only have I, not only have I read his stuff, but um, uh, I've also... I've seen him speak. Uh, I saw him speak... Two thousand and eight, I think it was at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. It was my sort of my first big coming out speech, which uh, people still watch on YouTube, and it's it's a great speech. Uh, and people watch it on YouTube and say, "Hey, Adam Kokesh." Uh, and I talked with uh, educator Peter Gray about uh, about him uh, as well. So yeah, he's uh, John Taylor Gatto uh, recommended. Um, he's got some interesting stuff too, just about how people sort of need to break free of their history in order to achieve great things. Danica Patrick comes to mind, uh, the, the, the race car driver. Anyway, um, yeah, I've, uh, I, I, I know him quite well and I think I tried to get him on the show, but I don't think he does. He don't think he really does interviews, at least not anymore. Oh, unfortunately well, he then, had a stroke and, uh, yeah, is no longer doing any interviews because of that. So, oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, that, um, our education system was designed this way, like about a hundred years ago by a bunch of socialists, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the educational system was designed explicitly on the Prussian model, which was supposed to produce dumbed down factory workers and yes. idiot shoot, shoot, shoot at will soldiers. So yeah, no, that's uh, exactly right. That is, uh, it's not, not an accident, um, what it's for. And apparently they got that from the Spartan, uh, structure, you know, just everyone serves the state. Everyone's like a servant to the state. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm working on a, um, uh, rise of Nazism, like uh, the fall of Rome. Let's do rise of Nazism because it sounds a lot more optimistic, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing so. And I have to start with the deep philosophical history of, of how we got these ideas at all, because they really are quite mental. And so um, 
Uh, you, you, I'm sure you'll enjoy that. If and well, not if and when, when it eventually comes out. I'm hoping to finish the rise of Nazism in less time than it took for Nazism to rise. But uh, Lord knows it took quite a while uh, to get the um, uh, to get the fall of Rome done. So, uh, but yeah, that was uh, loaded. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm sure I will enjoy it because I've been following you quite closely now for a few months. And um, also, I'm going to run this theory by you. Um, back to Mises' price calculation problem. Um, seen as like price fixes and you know top-down control, central planning, it causes shortages and ruins our standard of living or lowers it. Like overall. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me just for those who don't know the the calculation problem very briefly is that when you think about selling something in the free market, you have this amazing and free mechanism called price. Right. So, is it worth it for me to open a restaurant in some particular location? Well. I'm going to know what my actual costs of the restaurant are in a free market because people are going to say, here's how much it's going to cost for your stove system and for your heating and ventilation system and for your chairs and your tables and your cutlery and tablecloths and all that kind of crap and your new robot waiters. <laughs> so so the, the market's going to tell you how much things are going to cost and then you're going to figure out what your reasonable profit is and then you're going to figure out the prices of things and you're going to talk to a bunch of people, do a bunch of market research and eventually you're going to launch your restaurant if you think it's going to work and then the market will tell you whether it's working or not. And all of this requires that the free market is setting the prices. Yes. And if the government is setting the prices, you don't have actual information about best use of resources. So if you're a steel manufacturer, let's say you've just produced a ton of steel and what do you do with it? Well, in the free market, you ship it to whoever's willing to sell you the most for it, right? Because they have the greatest need and they are willing to sell the most for it because they've got their calculations that say this is where. So the the high price bid is a signal that that's the area of greatest need. And so in a free market with all of this price mechanism and there's no central planning, it just happens on its own. All of this price mechanism gives an enormous amount of information to people about areas of highest need. And um, a, a sort of simple example is, is Uber, right? So if there aren't enough Uber drivers out and demand is high, then Uber raises the prices so that it will lure more drivers off the couch and into the car seat to, to sort of drive around. And people were upset um, during the bombings that happened recently in New York that Uber was like very expensive, like it was twice the price. Oh, Uber's cashing in. It's price gouging. It's like, nope, no, because if there, there, there simply would be no drivers then. Right, because people aren't going to want to drive into a dangerous area where there could be more bombs, where their car could get damaged, where they might get beheaded by some shrapnel, and they're not going to go in there. So cabbies wouldn't go there. There would be no cars, and so you have to have an incentive for people to go in there, so so that uh, uh, you'll actually have drivers. And uh, and of course, people want um, you know people are willing to pay for it. And what it does is it also diminishes because Uber is twice the price. People who might who will who might walk. If it's twice the price, we'll walk, thus reducing the demand for Uber. So it balances that sort of really, really well. And uh, if it's really busy, right, if there's a huge demand, you know, it starts raining and all the movies get out and there aren't enough drivers, then, you know, everyone sitting on their couch get, oh, Uber price is double or 1.5 times or whatever. And uh, it's a beautifully finely tuned way of figuring out, of letting the market figure out how many drivers should be out there trying to pick up uh, passengers. So the price mechanism is essential for optimum use of resources in um, in society. And when the government starts setting prices, you lose all of that information. And now it's no longer 
a pull demand of where society's resources are most needed. It's a push demand, which is political, which is always corrupt. Um, I hope that's a decent way of summarizing it very quickly, but uh, just so people are up to speed on what we're talking about. Yeah, that you touched on right at the end there, right at the end there, what I was just about to get at. Um, uh, as services and goods, they become more scarce through this top-down planning and price fixing. Then the uh, the central planners that are going to distribute what's left of the resources the only way they know how, which is through politics. It's not through economics, right? And so they're going to distribute it to their buddies and themselves. And this is going to uh, cause, this is going to rile up the population, right? And so they're going to be, uh, they're going to dissent more often. And uh, is this where the totalitarian-esque uh, dictatorships come in, where they like have to stamp down on the population to protect their own wealth? the ruling class. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that's a part of it. I mean, I don't sort of get a particularly strong link in the chain here. Um, but certainly there's dissatisfaction, you know, when there's shortages, um, which are caused by central planning. I mean, 10% of the Venezuelan population right now is subsisting on what they find in garbage cans and garbage dumps, right? So there's a lot of shortage. And I think it was Tom Sowell who pointed out that it's great if you have this class of people that the average person can get angry at. Like if you if you are doing stupid central planning and central planning and central banking inflationary habits or tactics or policies, you're pumping up the money supply. Well, if you've got some store owner who has to raise his prices, people get mad at the store owner, not at the central bank, right? Because He's the immediate, quote, cause. Oh, you price gouging, the prices are going up, you're ripping me off, right? And the store owner is, of course, pretty helpless uh, in all of this. And so uh, this is why true socialism um, doesn't last quite as long, because in true socialism, it's the government store that is out of bread, right? It's that old joke, like in, in, in Soviet Russia, people wait for bread uh, in capitalist, in the capitalist West, bread waits for people, like mm-hmm. bread, lines of bread waiting for people. And so you, you really get that the government is not providing you anything good or useful. Like you have to line up for four hours just to get some moldy old piece of bread. And so what happens is the government doesn't have a scapegoat to blame the shitty economy on because the government is the economy. So then what happens? Well, the government then has to invent enemies, counter-revolutionaries, insurgents, betrayers. You know, the government has produced a vast amount of bread, but it got stolen on the way to the people's commissary of breadness and so we have to go and round up people and throw them in a gulag and shoot them and right because there has to be some scapegoat as to why the government is failing to provide what it promises right because in the um in the central planning model it's more efficient than the free market right but of course it's not and so then the government the government has to invent all these enemies either foreign or domestic that uh, it's sabotage, you see, the, the the evil capitalists are sabotaging our beautiful socialist production line, and that's why you don't have any bread, and it's terrible, but, you know, we, we're going to catch those guys, and then there's going to be tons of bread, and so they have to start this internal cleansing of various elements to, who, who are getting in the way of the bread getting to the people, and I think that kind of stuff happens on a fairly regular basis in these kinds of economies, and it happens now. 
Yeah. Uh, e- even in the West, right? I mean, the, you, you get these groups of, you know, it's white males right now. It'd be something else next week. Well, maybe not. But uh, it's those people who are keeping you. It's racism that's keeping you from all of these great things that the Democrats have been promising, say, the blacks for, you know, the last 50 years. And that's just you have to create scapegoats when the cause of the problem is readily identifiable. You have to distract people with scapegoats. Right. And that means, of course, that means throwing aside normal standards of jurisprudence, right? You have to get rid of innocent until proven guilty. You have to force people to sign confessions. You have to get rid of uh, the ability to confront your accuser. You have to get rid of uh, standards of reasonable doubt and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so it really decays. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good argument that it's a very strong part of why it becomes more totalitarian. Right. Um well, we can move on to uh, the next set of questions. Uh, I don't know how much more time we have. I'm going to keep moving just because we've got a lot of callers tonight. But, okay. And, and I, I like your next set of questions about entrepreneurship and should you do it with friends. Yeah. Um, so, But let's do that another time uh, because I want to make sure I can uh, – what is it they said about Hillary Clinton? Everyone had the same thing. Power through. I'm going to power through to yep. the end of the show. And I, you know, I, <laughs> I find that because uh, um, I did a, a, another show uh, today – on uh, the Scott shooting in North Carolina. I just want to make sure I have enough energy for the later caller. So okay. we'll move on but, uh, to the next caller, but please feel free to call in. It was a good set of questions you had on that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Stefan. All right, up next we have Andre. Andre wrote in and said, I've seen the NATO-Russia tensions play out from both sides. It seems as if most conflicts are created by deliberate public disinformation. How come the governments and media take their people to be naive enough to not question anything? And how did we as a people become naive enough to believe it all? That's from Andre. Oh, hey, Andre. How are you doing? Yeah, hey. Um, the 2 a.m. tiredness is slowly scraping away at my sanity, but all, all fine. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thanks. Um, I'm... I'm caffeinated, <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll try we'll try and keep it entertaining for you because it's a great question. Yeah. So originally, I was born in Belarus, and I immigrated with my parents to Germany, and um, so I went to elementary school in here, and we uh, kept taps on the Russian media um, through a satellite dish, like uh, many people do. Um, who come from other countries. So there is a very, um, very special moment I recall from my time at the elementary school. And it was uh, when the, um, uh, the Georgia-Russia conflict happened. So I turned on the news and it, uh, on the German side, it said um, the Russians uh, put up a line of tanks in the buffer zone between South Ossetia and uh, Georgia. And then I switched in this very moment because the, uh, it didn't interest me. Well, as an elementary school pupil, politics, I didn't care for them. And then I switched to the Russian uh, news um, just randomly. And in that very moment... Uh, and it, it happened exactly that way. The news said in Russian... Um, the Russians put up uh, a line of tanks and prevented uh, a conflict. And on the German side, it literally said 10 seconds ago, the Russians put up uh, a line of tanks and uh, almost escalated it. 
So a complete 180 on the same event that happened a couple of hours before. And even as an elementary uh, school student, it absolutely baffled me um, how media could report on a fact that didn't even develop fully yet in a complete 180 fashion. So um, during the, uh, my time at uh, the elementary school, we kind of um, got taught these values that you're never supposed to use violence, that every person on earth wants to live. And um, if a conflict happens, it usually is because of a reason. And um, um, so why people fight, there is always a reason, like an event that predates a conflict. And um, as I kind of watched the news from time to time, I kind of noticed that the way um, these media, uh, the media report on events is that they obstruct the reason why the conflict is there in the first place and only report on the facts. For instance, um, during the uh, Ukraine conflict, um, when I was at university, uh, well, a bit later on, um, a couple of students came uh, up to me and, well, we talked about how uh, evil Putin is and uh, how he invades the country. And um, I always stood there and kind of asked, but why do they do that? Um, but why does this happen? And later on, the, uh, I was at a um, university party. And in a quiet moment, I um, went out on the balcony. And there was this girl, and we got her to talk. And she just randomly said, you know, I'm absolutely scared of Putin. And uh, I was just like, why? Why? What is it that uh, makes him so evil? And uh, she went on uh, about kind of what the media told with the um, how Russia got into Ukraine and so on. And but she never actually had a concrete reason why it would be dangerous for me. And um, so in this kind of tale. And this conflict between um, Ukraine and Russia, um, the thing that um, always never gets told in the German media, for instance, is why do the why did the separatists fight, for instance, why um, why was there the actual war? And um, it always sounded like that since there was no reason given, it was easy to blame one side or the other. And for instance, who fights? It was easy to say, oh, it's, um, oh, it's this side, oh, it's uh, Russia who invaded, or it's Russia who tries to do the conflict. But it was never really explained, why do the people fight? Because the, the kind of the, the consensus of the people is, well, everyone wants peace, so why would you fight? And the reason was never given. And... Um, But the reason on the Russian side was very, very clearly stated. And it was um, the Odessa massacre on the 2nd of May in 2014, um, after which um, the pro-Ukrainian side um, um, put a fire on the trade union building in, uh, in a city in Ukraine and 40 people died. 
as a result. And that sparked the bloodlust of of the people to take revenge on those fallen souls. And this kind of, um, this was never stated. It was never clear why do people fight. And so it always kind of uh, jumped around uh, around the facts and um, that was never clearly stated. And right. that is there's kind a of, great quote. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah. I'd like to jump into my show from time to sure. time. Um, <laughs> there's a great quote from Hermann Goering. Um, believe a World War One ace and then head of the Luftwaffe in the Second World War. And this was told to Gustav Gilbert during the Nuremberg trials. And this is what people should get tattooed on their eyeballs. Hmm. <clears throat> this is what Hermann Goering said after the end of the Second World War when he was on trial. He was hung. Hanged? <laughs> anyway, he was hanged. So Hermann Goering said, why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece. Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor, for that matter, in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy. And it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. Um, yeah, that's... Um, I think that people from both sides... They don't have to get that tattooed. I believe people do understand that. And there is a really, really um, hardcore ingrained distrust that's slowly coming up through through the years that I've been in Germany. I've noticed that from year to year, less and less people actually um, trust the medium. And um, during the 19th century, there was uh, a time period in Germany that was called the Biedermeier time period where the public became so fed up with uh, how the emperor was elected and how they didn't have any say in it that they just they they just said i don't want to become political anymore and so they just kind of secluded themselves from politics and i believe that we are kind of going that way so um uh, for instance um during the nsa scandal um, the, uh, Edward Snowden revealed that um, the uh, NSA was uh, spying in a very, very well-crafted program around the world and also tapped into the Chancellor's mobile phone. And this slowly uh, kind of slowly became a bigger and bigger topic. And when it was revealed that um, the, the Chancellor's phone was tapped, the um, minister for um, uh, Mr. Frederick, uh, who was the minister for uh, the inner workings, went to USA to get an explanation out of them. So that was the official statement. And he came back the next day and proclaimed, I've been completely told everything. There is no problem. Everything's all right. And uh, at that, uh, when it was proclaimed, everybody went, well, how, how do you represent the people? You, 
No, I just meant that they had something on him, right? Yeah. So I'm going to just again jump into my own show. And um, so how do the uh, people are naive because the government has controlled generally the flow of information to the people. And uh, this, of course, has changed. I did a podcast many, many years ago called uh, the Gutenberg Press or the Gutenberg. So so, uh, the analogy being that the Internet was like the Gutenberg Press and that it took information out of the hands of elites and put it into the hands of people through direct communication, which is what Martin Luther did, of course, when he transcribed or translated the Bible into the Vulgate, into the vulgar tongue of the people. And then things got kind of exciting. So the uh, governments have been in control of information because they license uh, the, um, the media outlets. And so if the media outlets don't do what the government wants, then they find their licensing is being pulled and they can't afford to do that. So the governments have been in control of information. And um, the left, of course, has, I mean, it's kind of weird, because the left has spent decades and decades and decades building up their fortresses in the media and in academia and in the arts and in in the government and in newspapers and all of that, movies. And then suddenly, boom, along comes the internet and erodes that power that they had spent so much time building up. And this is why the left is currently going completely mental. Uh, and you've got like Hillary Clinton complaining about Pepe the Frog as <laughs> a white nationalist symbol, even <laughs> yeah. though Katy Perry tweeted it. And it's like it doesn't even take a moment's thought. You know, let me give you, <laughs> let me give you a hint, leftists. If there was a white nationalistic symbol, it would not be called Pepe because that's not a white Anglo-Saxon name. <laughs> anyway, it would be John, Paul, or <laughs> Ringo. Anyway, so um. Anyway, it, it's, this is why the left is kind of going mental at the moment and, and why they're hysterical about skittles and frogs and <laughs> lions and tigers. Oh, my. Because they, they, they thought they had it in the bag. They thought, well, we got, the, we got everything. We control. We got the public schools. We got the universities. We got the media. We got, we got everything. Boom. Done. We're in control. Whoosh. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Gamergate? What's that? <laughs> right? They, they, they're being pushed back because – the alt-right, which is the right with the tactics of the left, are gleefully and joyfully skewering and fighting back in a way that uh, civilized Republicans have been unwilling to do for decades or maybe longer. Yeah. And so this um, this is all beginning to unravel now because the people have a chance to communicate without the gatekeepers, without the people who have the licenses, without the people who are, are controlled by the government in one form or another. And... Um, People are, you know, if you give people one single source of information, what is their choice? I mean, they can choose to disbelieve it if they want, but they don't really have any alternative to go through. I mean, in Russia, there used to be these things called samizdat, which was sort of handwritten or hand-copied or hand-printed books, uh, the fountainhead. And I think Atlas Shrugged even circulated on that, on the back of a donkey, pulling a whole Slavic forest behind it and consumed trees. But um, uh, so if, if you go against the mainstream narrative as well. You know, one thing that seems to be kind of true is that being alternative used to be really associated with being childless. You know, you're a conspiracy theorist and, and so on. And, and that there's a huge amount of social cost to being what used to be called a conspiracy theorist, you know, that you have alternative views on why things happen or how things happen. And you have the ungodly alarming idea that rich people sometimes get together behind closed doors to align their interests, <gasps> particularly if they're involved in politics, right? Shocking, I know. But um, 
what would happen is you would be viewed as uh, crazy and the way that the government would generally control this stuff and and it would generally be controlled through um through women through sexual access is conspiracy theorists would be denigrated um in in sort of various subtle ways right i mean this happened on the simpsons they had an ayn rand school you know which made fun of ayn rand and and this is by objectivism and so on so so they'd say well objectivists are this and and therefore if you were an objectivist you were viewed in a negative light like the tea partiers are racists and all the alt-right is as racist and white national like all this nonsense right and so what happens is they try to interfere with your capacity to earn money and they portray you in a very negative light with the hopes that a if you don't make as much money your sexual market value will go down and b if we can convince women that you are crazy that you are um not going to succeed in this society then women will avoid you uh, and since the worst thing that can happen to you genetically is a failure to reproduce uh that tends to keep people quite a bit in line so remember women have to kind of gamble on a man's future success right i mean a man has to gamble on a woman's youthful fertility she might be young but infertile um but uh women have to gamble on how much money the man is going to make in the future, how good a father he's going to be, and so on. And, you know, the father thing is a bit more predictable based on his own family history, as is the mother thing. But she really has to gamble. So anything which can negatively impact a young man's future earning potential, his potential success in society, his acceptance by the mainstream, his capacity to get and hold a job, anything which can portray that in a negative light is an incredibly fantastic way of driving women away from people who think in some sort of alternative manner or just plain think. And uh, that generally gets men to fall in line because men will follow where the women are going. <laughs> where, where are the women at? Right? Men will follow where the women are going. And if the government can convince women that this particular group uh, or this particular belief set or this particular ideology or philosophy or whatever is negative, uh, is, is going to fail, is going to be rejected, then women are like, eh, you know, not for me, uh, because women are more risk-averse at the extremes than, than men. So I think that has been a very, very popular – and you see this showing up all the time. You see this showing up all the time. Like I remember watching a Bones, a Bones episode years ago where there were these anti-government zealots. You know, they, they believed in the Constitution. They were anti-government. And, of course, you know, they had – a giant compound and they were a cult and they were like crazy and it's like okay so this is how people are programmed and you see this all the, when you start to pick up on this stuff it's everywhere in in the media that um particular groups are programmed to be uh, to to evoke a negative response in people and uh, you know they'll They'll put the people they don't like, they'll, they'll make the actors unattractive, they'll make them sweaty, they'll put them in an uncomfortable situations, they'll make them mean, uh, and they'll make them growly, and they'll have mean voices, you know, <laughs> they're just bad haircuts, and, and like, whatever it's going to be, right? And they will give them unattractive spouses, or they'll just, whatever it is, right? Um, um, yeah, but I believe you make it out to be a little bit too simple. It's not that... It's just a tool that the government can use um, to manipulate people. I believe it's more to do with the people. Um, and it goes both ways. It's not just left. For instance, um, I've been on a, a little business trip to uh, Wuppertal. And the city was notorious in the media for uh, having the so-called Sharia police. 
where a um, couple of uh, uh, Muslim people started policing everybody on values on the street. And um, uh, I spoke to the people there and they told that um, when this happened, nobody in the city really got that info. It, nobody uh, kind of knew that it happened. It was not a big deal. It was just one moment of kind of street preaching. But they got calls from outside of Germany who called in and said, guys, what's going on in your city? There's like freaking Sharia police. It's awful. Oh, goodness. So, and they said, no, it was just a thing of street preaching. There is no reason to kind of blow it out of proportion. And um, I uh, I think that um, conflicts are kind of exactly this kind of um, where people are uh, only stirred towards one fact. And uh, it's not just... Uh, a, I'm sorry, a I, I got to interrupt you. I, I apologize for yeah. that. So you said that my analysis was... An my analysis was had sort of many layers and a wide yeah, variety yeah. of approaches True. and so on. And the sexual market value is original to me as far as I know. So you kind of pointed out that, that, that my analysis was simple and then you responded with some story I didn't quite understand about that they weren't enforcing Sharia law, they were just street preaching. Um, yeah, for instance. How is that, so, how is that a deep oh, and rich you, and complex thing that I didn't cover? I no, mean, no, I uh, no, no. Um, uh, because um, you kind of said that it's just uh, the government controlling the narrative. But um, no, no, that's, that's not what I said. Well, um, yeah, no, because um, as I pointed out, there is uh, the left has gone into more than government, right? As I mentioned, they've gone into universities, they've gone into movies, television. Uh, I just cited an example from a television show. Now, of course, the government does control licensing and, and does control access to uh, the audience through some of that. So it has an influence. But no, I didn't say it was just government. So maybe it wasn't my explanation that was simplistic, but your reception of it. True, true. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, um, my, uh, what I think is that for instance, um, but yeah, that does actually explain it quite well. So, m m um, Germany used to be, uh, a balancing force between two sides and in recent years, um, the politics has kind of picked one side over the other, me, uh, being, being, bit towards uh, NATO. And um, um, after this narrative has been pushed that um, one side is inherently better than the other, um, I believe that um, this kind of balancing force, this kind of mindset where people always looked towards both sides and kind of tried to find the hooks and what is being told and why. Um, and I think that's slowly disappearing. And um, so uh, people move away from uh, being in politics and becoming secluded because um, politics and the media kind of just steam ahead and being just the train, uh, kind of the pulling force of where narrative goes and not necessarily the people anymore. Well, no, I mean, people are, uh, I think, I don't know, in, in Germany, right? Uh, Angela Merkel is finally beginning to realize that she she's admitted that she kind of lost control of the refugee or the migrant situation uh, last year uh, and a little earlier. And uh, she, she, I shouldn't laugh because it's a very serious issue, right? But she's saying like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, I guess I don't know what the voters want. Maybe they could just tell me, you know, maybe, maybe they could just let me know. I don't, I don't know what they want. And it's like, 
because there's no alternative. If you look at America right now, I mean, dear God, American politics has even drawn me into <laughs> its, its spider web of, of intrigue and interest, uh, which I really wasn't that um, much into it before. Um, in, in Germany, people have abandoned politics because they don't feel like there's any particular choice or options. Now, maybe with the AFD and other things there is, but until someone comes forward where there is a real choice and people think that there may in fact be a different path, it's not just the same uniparty shadow puppets from the same shadowy people behind the throne, but there is actually a potential real choice. Uh, then I think they will get more engaged. And uh, I know that for Trump, it's a lot of people who never have voted or rarely have voted before. And now I think Soros and his henchmen are trying to scour up 8 million foreign U.S. voters of whom only 12% voted in the last election and scour them up and try and get them to vote for Hillary and all of that because uh, Lord knows we wouldn't want it decided on policy and history. So uh, I think that uh, when someone comes along, and maybe there is in Germany um, who's just rising, but when someone comes along and people feel there is a real choice, there is a real option, uh, and that it will follow through, uh, I think that they will get more engaged. And maybe you could be that person. But uh, <laughs> thanks very much for the call. I appreciate that. And move on to the next caller. But it was a, a great pleasure to, uh, to listen. Sure. See you. All right. Up next, we have Jacob. Jacob wrote in and said, what are the characteristics of human nature? Are those characteristics changeable? If so, how can they be changed? You've spoken on this topic a couple of times, and I think I've noticed some inconsistency. Take the video, quote, Shocking misogynist attacks feminism, defends rape culture. For example, at 1547, you pose a mental exercise to the audience to explore the roots of human violence. At 1614, you preface the exercise by saying that you don't, quote unquote, buy the human nature argument and follow with, what is human nature? is like saying, what is the shape of water? Well, it depends what you pour it into. But in a later video, Why the Regressive Left Has Already Lost, you suggest an alternative description of human nature. At 1854, you ridicule leftists for viewing human beings as water and implying that human nature is infinitely malleable. Specifically, you were criticizing the idea that immigrants can easily adapt to the culture of their new host country. I've wrestled with this issue myself, and I was wondering if you could clarify your thoughts. That's from Jacob. Oh, hey, Jacob. Uh, that's really good stuff. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to, you know, get the we'll, – we'll put the links to this below. But thank you so much for taking the time to, to write it down, to get the quotes. That's the kind of criticism I love. Like good like, – as opposed to people just saying, well, I think you said something here. Thank you. Thank you so much for getting the facts and, 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 and bringing this to the forefront. This is uh, really good and uh, really important stuff, so – Hey, Once again, uh, thanks. thanks for taking my call, and uh, my, no problem. <laughs> my pleasure. Um, so, it's a very, um, it's a very good objection, and it's not clear in in what you've said where I stand. So, let me see if I can clarify it. So, we would not say that it is human nature to speak Japanese rather than English, right? Right. But I think we would say that it is human nature to speak a language, right? Yeah, I agree. I think we would also say that it is neither human nature to be tall or short, right? Right. But I think we would say that it is human nature, or at least a biological response, that if one is malnourished, one will be shorter than otherwise. Right. So, 
the question of um, what is the shape of water, it depends what you pour it into. Children who are raised by wolves, <laughs> but even babies raised by wolves, they know exactly when they've been had. So babies who are raised by wolves, they get along with wolves, right? They, they, they adapt to that. Obviously, it's not great. And if they miss the language window, then they end up not being able to speak language usually very well at all. It's, I don't know, some age window, like two to five or whatever it is. If you don't get exposed to language, you kind of miss, miss the boat on it and never quite get it. So when it comes to harming our natural natures, that can certainly happen. Are human beings naturally violent? Well, um, no. Because usually it takes a combination of some genetic susceptibility combined with an abusive environment to make a human being violent. Is human nature violent? No. Now, human nature, when it is traumatized and when it has particular genetic potentialities, right? There's, there's some study, and we, we quote this in the bomb in the brain, bombinthebrain.com, where 100% of children with a particular gene set who were exposed to violence became violent. Is it their human nature? No. It's They have the potentiality for violence based upon their genetics, but it has to be that they are exposed to violence in their environment. They, they are abused or exposed to violence in their environment, and that means that they will most likely become violent. What is their nature? Well, can't really pin it down. You can't change the genetics, but you certainly can change the environment. Now, when it comes to uh, socialists or communists, the idea that, you know, they're going to create a new Soviet man. So you can harm a human being, right? But, but as far as I understand it, there's no, there's no environment that will make someone with an IQ of 80 become a genius. Now, you can... Uh, starve and beat and so on. And then somebody who's got an IQ of 150 or a potential IQ of 150 will end up with a lower functional IQ, if that makes sense. Or you could say uh, you take someone with an IQ of 150 potential and then you have them raised by wolves and then you find them when they're 15 and they never really learn how to speak language and, you know, speak words and, and they can't, you know, how well are they going to do on an IQ test? How well are they going to survive in society? So you can pull people back down. You can bring people down. You can harm them which is why I focus so much on parenting and all this kind of stuff to help people to flourish as best they can. So that's when I say, what is human nature? It's like saying, what is the shape of water? Well, it depends what you pour it into. That in terms of like, you can harm, you can negatively impact people. And that's why I'm talking about roots of human violence. However, when I criticize the leftists for saying, we can create some new man who has no self-interest, who will work for the collective no matter what, who will not care if people to the left and right of him aren't working, he will still work equally hard no matter what. Now, the reason I criticize that is because that's anti-biological in its root. Right? So all animals... Uh, care how much resource, how many resources they're expending versus how much they're gaining back. All animals really care about that. And animals that don't care about that don't survive, don't flourish. Their genes don't get passed along. Uh, animals in a tribe really care about 
whether other animals in the tribe are pulling their fair share. Right? So if you are a, um, you're part of a jackal pack, everybody's going to go out and hunt. Because it's obviously it's to the advantage of each individual jackal to not go out and hunt, right? Like each individual male jackal, if everyone who goes out and hunts just brings back and gives food to an adult male jackal just as if it was a baby or a breastfeeding mom or a mom jackal, well, that wouldn't work because the incentive then to stay back and not hunt would be very high, right? So saying that we can change human beings to not care about how well or how hard other human beings are working who are working in a particular production line or something like that, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, you you can make a, um, a jackal super mean by traumatizing it and beating it and starving it and all that. You can make a jackal mean. That doesn't mean the jackals are innately mean. But can you make a jackal not care whether the other jackals are coming hunting or not? Well, no, all, all the jackals have to come and hunt who are able to. Because the jackals that don't are going to be getting free stuff, which is going to increase the incentive to not hunt. And if nobody hunts, they all starve to death. So there has to be a way of divvying up the work requirements and, and getting it all to, to be shared equally. And so they're actually like when communists say, well, well, we'll get people who have no selfishness. They don't care whether they work hard and are not rewarded or don't work hard and are rewarded. And they won't care about whether other people work hard or not. And even though there is this thing, you know, he who does not toil shall not eat and all that is not sort of how it worked out in practice. So I think they're saying be a non-biological entity, be, be an entity that has not had those biological imperatives for a long, long time in evolution. And if you didn't have those biological imperatives to make sure the work was fairly shared to make sure everyone was pulling their weight, then it would not be a pack animal. You would not be case selected in that way. Does that help at all? Yeah, no, that's a, a really good clarification. And I, I sort of thought you might touch upon that. Uh, and I know in the, the videos that I referenced in my question, I know, um, at least in the, in the second video I referenced, you were talking specifically about immigration, um, and and you actually uh, preempted a follow-up question that I had, um, because the reason uh, this topic is important to me is because uh, I hang around, hang around with uh, minarchists pretty often, and, uh, you know, I, I explain to them, you know, the or I, I debate with them and argue the merits of anarchy and voluntarism. And they will often, uh, they'll often agree with that, but they'll say, well, human nature is an impediment to having a, a voluntary society. Um, and, and I will present them with facts about, you know, the bomb in the brain and peaceful parenting and uh, similar arguments. And they'll say, well, that sounds a lot like the, uh, the socialist arguments uh, where we can just you know, precondition uh, through upbringing and and government education, we can sort of create this this Soviet man that you mentioned. Um, and uh, I I think I think you're getting at the reason why that uh, doesn't really work, and that's because it's biologically uh, it, it just it's contradictory. Um, you don't have creatures that uh, that seek the maximum. Uh, or the minimum amount of gain with the maximum amount of effort. Um, it's not something that nature selects for. 
Uh, and I think that's, that's a, a good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and with regards to a voluntary or stateless or anarchic society, it, that, that is a recognition of human nature, that, that all animals wish to get the maximum resources with the least effort. And if you create a state, that's what they're going to do. And power corrupts, right? And, and uh, so it is a recognition of that, um, that basic fact, that uh, everyone's lazy and greedy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Lazy and greedy is is fantastic. Uh, that's why we have remote controls. Rather, when I was a kid, you had to get up and <laughs> turn the dial yourself. Uh, so I'm nothing wrong. That's fantastic, right? But you combine the laziness and greediness with state, and you have a huge, huge problem uh, and that is going to continue to escalate because, uh, yeah, everybody wants something for nothing. And um, there's nothing wrong with pursuing that. We, we all want more efficient farming, which is why we have combine harvesters rather than having everyone out there in the field. So um, it, it is a recognition of human nature that uh, power corrupts, violent power corrupts, uh, and uh, having a state at the center of society is always going to cause disasters. Right. And, well, and on top of that, you could also make the argument, um, and this is basically the, the classical liberal argument, uh, and Matt Ridley makes this argument in his book, too. Um, but it, it's really more of an Aristotelian or, or Darwinian argument um, that exchange and peaceful cooperation is a defining characteristic of human nature. Um, in fact, if you, if you uh, read The Rational Optimist uh, by Matt Ridley, he points out that the Neanderthals actually had bigger brains. They had a, a bigger uh, brain size to body ratio than Homo sapiens did. Um, but there was some missing ingredients that caused the, the Neanderthals uh, to, to die out. And he argues that it was the, uh, the emergence of exchange, which was a uniquely homo sapien or human phenomenon um, that allowed human beings to flourish. And I think it's just, it's empirically and demonstratively true that human beings are peaceful cooperators. Um, and, and John Stuart Mill touches upon this too in, in his book on liberty, uh, you know, the state of society is not much worse than it could have been. And he owes, he, he credits that with the, uh, the emergence of, of rationality and discussion. And that's sort of his justification for free speech and free thought. But, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I think the whole Locke versus Hobbes debate about human nature, is it good or bad? Well, that, that's, uh, sort of maybe missing the mark a little bit. It, it, it is evident that human beings um, are peaceful cooperators and it's not really possible to construct or devise a human being that would not operate according to those incentives. Yeah, now to me, an interesting question, which I don't have any answers to, but I know is being raised in various uh, areas, is the degree to which culture may be biological. Right. So when I was a kid, there was sort of a famous um, statement about the Japanese, inscrutable, right? I couldn't figure out what they were thinking and so on. And is that cultural or is it biological? Um, when it comes to um, Europeans, is the European culture merely a set of ideas or are there biological components to it as well? And I don't know the answer to any of this, and I know that uh, there's a few people working on it who I'm sort of keeping track on uh, to try and figure this out. But the fact that 
Western culture, the, the positive aspects of Western culture, which I've talked about before, you know, equality for women, separation of church and state, free market, scientific thinking, free speech, all that kind of stuff. Um, it has not really been very transferable to other cultures. And there is a question which I hope people are working on, although it would be pretty, it'd be challenging stuff to work on, to put it mildly. But um, is there the possibility that culture has biological components to it? Um, it would certainly explain why multiculturalism doesn't really work very well. And it would explain why cultures don't tend to transfer from one place to another. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it's a challenging thesis. And uh, I know a few people who are working on that, which if I find out more information as they move forward, we'll certainly share it here. But that is um, not something I'd ever really thought of before. But uh, it has been raised in certain circles. And I think it's an interesting hypothesis. And um, I would uh, be interested in seeing how that plays out um, and what standards of proof would be used for that. I'm not even sure of either, but that's something to mull over sort of in the back of your head. And if people know more information about this, please send it in because this interplay between biology and philosophy and ideas and culture and all of that, I find to be a very fertile ground because, you know, it's so non-controversial. It's, you know, naturally draws me like a moth to a flame. So uh, that uh, is another question that I don't have any particular answer to and certainly was not on my mind uh, when I was making the video where that was a recording of a speech I gave in Detroit at a men's rights conference uh, some time back. That was a really good speech, by the way. I enjoyed it. Um, I agree. Thank you. I was, uh, I was pleased with it. All right. Well, thanks very much for your question and move on to the next caller. But a uh, real pleasure as a chat with you and uh, feel free to come back anytime. All right. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Nicole. Nicole wrote in and said, if I want to be a hero and help others, I should have heroic traits. What does it take to be a hero in your own sphere of influence? And what can history tell us about common heroic traits and how to obtain them? That's from Nicole. Hello. Hey, Nicole. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. All right. Um, it's a good question. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by heroic or heroism? Well, and actually, I was just thinking about that, like how to define it. Um, because in my mind, when I think of a hero, I think of, you know, like... Me! <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I definitely... I definitely admire people who are, you know, honest and spoken out, especially when it's not popular. I think of like a George Orwellian 1984 society and that person standing up and saying, everyone, big brother cannot take care of you. <laughs> like, <Right. that> thing. <laughs> like the grand hero, but also that there's, um, Oh my goodness, and this quote might escape me, but, you know, it's that idea of, you know, history is also written by the people who win, right? And so they always paint themselves as, as the hero. Well, sorry, except m modern history is written by the people who whine, but that's a different <laughs> right, topic. Yeah. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, people who might be like pro-Hillary would be like, you know, idolized and be like, oh, she's our hero and all that. And and I would argue that she would not be. But um, I guess what I'm looking for is are, are those who, I guess, are attached to virtue and stand up for truth and virtue in spite of, of 
the rest of the world just going in a complete different direction. Right, right. Well, um, what does it take to be a hero in your sphere of influence? What can history tell us about common heroic traits? Well, the problem, of course, is that heroism often meant violent service to the man in charge. Hmm, right. You know, um, <laughs> I played Macbeth. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I couldn't help but notice, and it, it, you know, it made the... It made the part a little challenging to play at times, but I couldn't help but notice that, you know, Macbeth has just, the, the play opens, he's been out there cutting down all of the peasants and, and mowing down all of the people and killing for the king. And he's a hero and has no problem with that and sleeps just fine. But the moment he acts against the king, ooh, ooh, it's terrible. Now he can't sleep. It's a curious right? like, Kill the commonlings. No problem. Kill the king. <gasps> dun, 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 right. So, um, so, yeah, heroic usually generally means uh, somebody who's willing to subjugate their survival instinct for the sake of hopefully coming back in a uniform with functioning balls so that he can make babies. <laughs> that's, you know, that's generally what uh, heroism has meant in the past. Right. I think that the courage that is required for heroism these days is much more subtle and more elusive for people at times. And um, having consistency in, in, the, in, in the facts, having consistency uh, and and honor and integrity in the presentation of information that is really, really important for people to have. Really, really important for people to have. Uh, the, the more important the information is that people need to have, the more people will object to you sharing it, right? So, you know, race and IQ, human biodiversity, um, male victimization in modern society, hypergamy, I mean, voluntary societies, voluntary families, voluntary relationships, blah, blah, blah. These are all essential uh, pieces of information and arguments for people to have, which means that you're probably going to get the most flack for bringing them, as they only say, as they say, right. you only shoot at the airplane when it's over the target, right? <laughs> right. And so I think that it's just gritting your teeth and saying, I know I'm going to take some flack for putting this information out here, but it's really, really important to do it. And this is sort of a long chain of people throughout history who have uh, worked hard to get information out at risk of sort of personal ease of mind at times, a personal peace of mind at times. And um, it's actually, it's not that bad. You know, I mean, it's it's not that bad. As far, you think it's going to be bad. Maybe occasionally there'd be times where like, ooh, I don't know about this one. And it's like, eh, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Because I, I, I think that if you're coming at, if you're coming at the information from a good place, like I really, really want to help the world. I really, really want to help people. I really, really want to make families better. And, and I want parents and children to get along better. And I want people to have more freedom. And I want facts and, and reality and truth and honor and integrity and virtue and rationality and all of that to spread from a good place. And I think if you're coming from a sort of a good place, like you want the world to be a better place and you care about people, it's really hard, I think, for people to attack you and just not look like douchebags. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it, it does. Though I, I'll add, so this is maybe adding a little bit more personal because, you know, I want to have, you know, those traits. And so I've been kind of steadily dipping my toe in. And, but with everything happening, I'm like, I'm, I don't know, I guess I'm just going to have to jump into the pool. And being, um, well, I'll get into all of the maybe the identity politics, so you can feel my pain. So I am a, you know, a, a black woman who's maybe libertarian-leaning-esque, right? 
And um, I remember the first time I just casually mentioned to my family in 2008 that I was going to switch to Ron Paul. And they, it was like a big freak out, right? It was like, oh, how no. big? How big? Oh, give me, give me, give me the volume. Getting <laughs> the volume. Well, okay. So my my family is involved in democratic politics, and it all. And I decided to wear my Ron Paul Revolution T-shirt to a dinner with my dad and his some of his friends who are also in democratic politics and they for the first thing they said was um a republican you know and republicans just means evil devils just <laughs> all that right i'm like no but you, you have to understand his his policies and what he talks about and they're like well where's he from and i'm like he's from texas and they're like a white republican from texas <laughs> so i think in their head, I don't know. It was just like a big nuclear explosion, and I and I got the lecture of no matter what he says or what he agrees, he must somehow be racist, and that also. Well, sorry, he he must just somehow be racist he because he's from Texas and he's white and he's a Republican. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> he was That's just... good. It it sounds like they were very curious. <laughs> right. Tell tell me more, Nicole. That's very interesting. I've not heard this perspective before. So he just. He just must be racist. And then the other part was that it was so crucial that there was a black man running for president who had a chance and that I would not, that I would look back on history, that I threw this moment away and they channeled the apparitions of Martin Luther King and, you know, Malcolm X and, and all that, condemning the, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, and then I even had a friend who told me, because she was, who's, um, who was very surprised by all of this. And so, but she was willing Wait, to surprised have, by all of what? By my position. But she was willing to have the policy debate. So we kind of went back and forth with policy. But she was also somehow convinced that Ron Paul was just racist. And then she ended up making this one statement that really threw me for a loop. And our relationship really hasn't been the same since. But she said, because so this is in 2012, so further along and yeah. so we were talking about Obama and some of the drones and the foreign policy and everything like that and she said well you know what I would rather have you know someone in office who maybe has made you know like a few foreign policy errors than someone who's racist and I was just like <laughs> what just what just happened Wow. And so I so, so she she's fine with, you know, hundreds of thousands of innocent Muslims dying in the Middle East. Right. But heaven forbid that somebody who could be called racist. Oh, okay. All yes. Right. And so since then and, and maybe this is because of my history, you know, I've been a little more like stealth undercover, right? Um like in my sphere because I'm I live far away from my family now and and all that. And so I'm kind of, you know, not offended by Trump. Well, I kind of would probably vote for him, possibly. Um, and I like, I don't even think, you know, so I, we just went, we just went on vacation with my dad and, and all that. And, you know, I just let all the conversations happen around me, but I'm like, I don't think I, could even 
begin to bring up that as a possibility or oh you mean so trump trump is worse <laughs> than um, than ron paul so uh, orange is, is worse than white that's, right. that's what you're saying right. right okay and um and uh, yeah it would just be really bad but even just in general when it comes to even personal choices or decisions or things with my family because there's of, of course a lot of family dysfunction um and i tend to be the the fixer um but it's mm. always been in the get the next 5 seconds of peace kind of thing <laughs> right. which is right the really challenging I, I, I know that planet pretty well so yeah i'm, I'm with you there <laughs> um versus really saying okay now look you're just being ridiculous and <laughs> If you say you really don't want this when you talk to me and I say, well, maybe, da 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 or da 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 then you go do the opposite. And then it's like, oh, Nicole, help. And it's, so anywho. Um, so I've become, I guess, a little more quieter. Like I was, at first I would never say anything. Then I did my brazen Ron Paul t-shirt, big explosion than other things, and that got a little quieter. Um, but my husband's the opposite. My husband just—he's—he has no filter. So everyone <laughs> looked at my husband, and they're just like, "Nicole, how can you live with such a man?" And I'm like, "He's so great. He's a great, you know, wonderful person. He's fine." Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, but there is also. Uh, because that same year um, that I had my Ron Paul t-shirt was the same year that my husband and I kind of started dating. So they also kind of blame him a little bit. But it's really not his fault. It's his best friend's fault. <laughs> but who kind of challenged <laughs> Look, as long as it's a man's fault, I'm satisfied. Just <laughs> right. as, as long as it's not your fault as a lady, I, I'm perfectly happy to, to feel like I'm in comfortable territory. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, you know, so anywho, I'm kind of rambling around the bush here. Um, but I also, my, you know, my children are getting older and they're more verbal and they're more aware of things. And so, you know, they'll bring up like casual stuff and it's like, well, mommy said, and then I'm like, oh, snap, I can't lie and be like, I didn't say that. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I need to, you know. And, and it feels it feels weird telling your kids, this is our little guilty family secret. <laughs> we are interested in the free market and we have some sympathy for Republican positions. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell, right. Don't tell granddaddy. <laughs> That's right. Do not tell anyone. We will we, we'll, we'll be ostracized. Right. We won't. Yeah, no, that's that. Yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. Yeah. So, so there's that. Um. So I'm wondering, from a personal standpoint, too, if if it's a possible for me to, I guess, kind of gain that that courage um, where even, I mean, still have everything, obviously, you know, coming from a good place, but how do I get over the hump of the, of the consequences on the other side? Because I know you were saying it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. And I'm like... Well, no, I mean, it's... <laughs> Maybe, maybe for me. I mean, I can understand that things might be a little bit more exciting for you. Um, okay. Do you think that facts would matter 
um, in this uh, in this debate? Only to a f- maybe like a few individuals. But and I, do you think your family would respond to any sort of any of the facts uh, about what's happened to blacks under Obama's reign? Um, I think the initial reaction would be to excuse it or to say that just can't be true and then not do the legwork themselves. There's- yeah, no, I get that. But I mean, of course, everybody reacts. A lot of people react to this kind of um, new facts, they, uh, recoil, right? right? But, you know, after a while, you know, water, water wears away stone kind of thing. You, you can just sort of be, uh, be patient and all of that, right? Right, right. So here's a couple of facts mm-hmm. that uh, I would say out there to my black brethren and sisters <laughs> in, the, in the world, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so this is under Obama. This is from earlier this year. Seasonally adjusted labor force participation rate for black Americans across the board is down 2.4% from 632 to 61.7%. Labor force participation rate. Well, that's not good. Right. Um, the percentage of black Americans struggling below the poverty line has increased right. from 25.8% in 2009 to 26.2% in 2014. Real medium income among black households has gone down. 1.5%. The really shocking one is the number of black food stamp participants has exploded from 7.4 million to 11.7 million. That's almost 60% increase. Almost a 60% increase. Um, from Obama's oath of office through the fourth quarter of 2015, the percentage of black Americans who own homes crashed from 46.1% to 41.9%, down 9.1%. Wow. And it's not good. Minority households' medium income fell 9% between 2010 and 2013, compared to a drop of only 1% for whites. Minority households' medium income fell 9%. I'm sorry to use the word minority. Like, it's very, (laughs) it's a cheesy word, right? Yeah. Um, cause you know, you're not a minority to you. <laughs> anyway, I just sort of, you know, it's, it's a cheesy word, but this is, this is how it's reported. So I apologize for that. Um, so it is, um, it is pretty bad. The wealth gap, um, the median non-white family today has a net worth of just $18,100, almost a fifth lower than it was when Mr. Obama took office. White median wealth has gone up by 1% to 142,000. In 2009, white households were seven times richer than their black counterparts. That gap is now eightfold. Both in relative and absolute terms, blacks are doing worse under Mr. Obama. And these numbers apply to all all Mm non-whites, right? Including the (laughs) hyper-performing Asian, (laughs) right? Whatever, right? right? I mean, (laughs) it's it's crazy. Wow. See, I knew... If you just look at black net worth, white households are 13 times wealthier than black households. Um, from 2010 to 2013, white household medium wealth increased 2.4%. Hispanic families went down 14%. Blacks' net worth fell from 16,600 to 11,000, a three-year drop of 34 goddamn percent. Excuse my French. Yeah. <laughs> 34% Crazy. in three years. 
That's insane. That's a steeper decline than 2007 to 2010. And that's what Which was the, 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 the depth of the recession, right? So in 20, 2007 to 2010, Black's net worth fell 13.5%. But from 2010 to 2013, it went 34%. Now, some people say, ah, oh, well, you know, but uh, the black uh, unemployment is down. It's like, well, yes, because labor, labor participation is down, sure. Because <laughs> they ain't looking for works. <laughs> and you ain't looking for work, you don't get counted, right? And we even... So kind of just a on the ground view kind of commentary, because my husband and I, we moved from kind of a suburban area to the hood, as you call it, intentionally with some other families to try to and to at least try to be. I don't know, maybe be a little lamp of, you know, virtual value, community help resource network and, and all of that. And I remember, again, talking with another friend about um, Black Lives um, Matter. And she's like overseas right now. But anywho, um, and as she started talking about it, you know, the kind of the assumption, you know, is like all Black people love Black Lives Matter. And so I kind of squeaked in there. I was like, well, you know, I have some criticism, you know, and all that. And we kind of. I just want a new movement uh, to, <laughs> to restore the Black family called Black Wives Matter. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. And I was talking to her about how even just some of the, the, the rhetoric and what it does to the mindset of, you know, just the kids in the community that I talk to or have cut my grass, you know, and this and that and the other. And it's, and she's like, but no, it's, it's really bigger. It's about policy. It's about this and it's about that. And I'm like, you know, all these kids here are, you know, pigs in a blanket fry like bacon. And there's, they, I mean, they're already in, you know, environment. And it's a, a lot of them, unfortunately are, um, in households where there's not a lot of, you know, stability. We've had, like, three people asked to, you know, live with us um, at varying points. You know, all these kind of different things. Um, and no, I, I don't actually know too, oh, too no. much about that. You know, sorry. <laughs> you mean, like, kids who need a more stable environment want to come and live with you and your husband and your kids? Right. So, it, there's like been... Like, relatives? Kind of cousins? That no, kind of thing? no. These are just kids that we got to on the street. So, what my husband used to do was when we came down, he would um, take a bunch of kids out to play basketball. Like, we're just going to, you know, hoop, chat, and talk, you know, all that. And then um, some of them, you know, got, you know, intertwined into, you know, to our lives. Because then when it wasn't, a, the weather wasn't good to play outside, then they came in and, you know, cleared out my basement and I made them sloppy joes, you know, all that kind of thing. And so you would hear these stories that were just, just just really depressing. I, I think one of the craziest ones was um, there is a young man. Well, well, he's a teenager. He's much older. He's older now. He's kind of a few years back. But he also had a brother. And, you know, her his mother was um, tied to the state and um, and not being very honest with the, you know, with the state either. So, theme brother um i guess when he was younger was said to have some type of mental um 
illness and but then it, it wasn't really the case. I mean, he's, you know, pretty articulate, you know, that's all, you know, does okay in school and all that. Doesn't have a good. Or you, re- you really, I just wanted to mention, you're really not allowed to refer to blacks as articulate. <laughs> you may not, you may not be aware of this, but it's just right. very, very important. But sorry, go on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he's, I mean, overall, you know, just fine from, from all we can, you know, see. He's a teenager now. But what has turned out what his mother had been asking him to do was every year when they would go to get to see the caseworker, she would ask him to pretend, you know, like he was dumb or, you know, had some issue um, in order. Because I, I, I remember this from someone else's show years ago. I think it was uh, Brett Vanott's School Sucks. But he was talking about how um, you can get additional payments from the government if your child has some sort of problem, mental health or, or, or disability or learning problem. Is, is it something along those lines? Yes, I think it's like a SSI disability type of thing. Yeah, that's it. Thing. And so he recently was like, you know, I'm not going to do it. And, um, and she was, you know, very upset and, you know, but him on punishment got upset with the older brother and then got upset with my husband because it's like, you don't care about my family. You don't care about my kids. If you cared, you would, you know, make sure we had the money and all the stuff and whatnot. And- I don't know. How about, <laughs> how about you care about my tax bill? <laughs> and, and I mean, it's just totally like it's so I was trying to, you know, communicate this to her that the that I think there's this kind of weird divide and gap because, you know, Black Lives Matter is also really popular on, you know, college campuses and all that. And and that there's this rare gap between some, I'm not sure if you would call them like Black intellectuals or, you know, kind of however you would call it versus um, versus, you know, when you live every day and you're seeing the impact of, you know, fathers not being in, you know, young boys' lives and um, and not trusting of police officers so crimes don't get, you know, reported and stuff doesn't get shared. And it's just very common to be like, oh, yeah, someone just went in my garage and stole my lawnmower. And so <laughs> you just get all your lawnmowers from the pawn shop. So hopefully you're not out too much um, every summer. Um, or, you know, just like, these other varying things and that if you really wanted to help and encourage um, the black community, uh, especially in urban culture, right? Because this isn't all just black people in, in my neighborhood. I mean, there's like, you know, um, there's, there's white poor kids too, but they kind of adopt the, that urban culture. Um, and that it's, it's really, you know, uh, devastating. And I mean, even the ones that my husband kind of talks to and, and works with now, I mean, I mean, he mostly talks with teenagers. So they kind of have like two years to like flip their whole lives upside down. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, hard to, to, to really, um, get to a point where you're, you know, 18 and able to fully be independent because you've, you know, lived in, in such a lifestyle for so long. And I think a lot about, you know, when helping hurts and, you know, especially when I, I feel 
really offended a lot by by leftists who I think just view us as like a voting block, right? So we'll just say that all these people are racist. We'll say, we're here to help you. And then, I mean, all those statistics you just read off and you're worse. Um, but then if, you know, someone says like, hey, this is not, this is not helpful. This is destroying you. This is, you know, eating up alive, whether it's, you know, if it's a white person, then it's just, oh, you don't understand or you're racist or we only like white people who um, apologize for their privilege and, you know, all that. And then there's the, you know, other side is if you are a minority and you are black and you say, you know, hey, this is wrong. It's like, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, you love the plantation. (laughs) And it's like, and it's like you, you a house Negro, yeah, right, exactly. You're an Oreo, yeah, <laughs> right. You're an Oreo, you know, all that. Um, and 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 that's another thing that makes me so frustrated with the left too is that they've taken blackness and they've made it, and they've given it this definition that it's not, or that it doesn't have to be. I, I should say. What, um, what do you mean? So give me give me the definition they've given it, and then we'll see. Well, what I mean by that is like you have to you have to um you know love big government um you have to be you know very supportive of you know handouts and all that um you have oh to- and you you have to believe that the 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 big barrier is always sort of institutional white racism right. and like okay white people white boogeymen everywhere um <laughs> and <laughs> And you know, I've got to tell you, sometimes when I pass by the mirror, I get that same feeling. <laughs> really, right, right. <laughs> right. And I mean, just where, and so when they say, when so when you look at someone like, you know, I guess a, a Larry Elder or someone, I'm trying to think of other conservatives that are black. It's like, oh, no, they're not really black. Don't be like them. Like, you want to. <laughs> So 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 black is is not not a biological thing anymore. Now it's an ideology, right? Right? Like you can you can become non-black by becoming a Republican. And it's and it's funny because the the ironic statement I like to say back, partially because of all the all the politic politics around um, some of the Black Lives Matters movement in, in police, because I'll be like, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you're not really black. I'll be like, tell that to a cop. <laughs> Or, I don't know, a little well, It'd be interesting if, if you and your husband turn out to be Republicans and you give birth to a white baby. That would actually be <laughs> right. kind of proof of that, right? It's, it actually happened. It's here. But, <laughs> but yeah. Oh, no, wow. So, so, I, so I feel all of that. And so and so maybe it's because of the election or my Facebook feed or, you know, whatever. It's it's like all that's building up. And I want to be like, champion for, I don't know black community but will not probably be received at, at all um i mean to talk about the value of family how we should be you know treating our children the values we should be putting in them the um even when i think about just our educational system i mean the the state itself is is obviously a big problem but even to the the level of in investment in at least i can speak for my particular um you know relationships that I've had with some of these, you know, basketball kids, um, you know, the investment that their parents make in them for their education. Um, uh, There's this one guy who I, unfortunately, I can't remember. I'm such a terrible quoter, but lived a long time ago, like in India. He said the best university was his mother's lap. 
and with his mother's what? With his mother's lap. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> and that you know, there's just not that that same amount of you know quality time and this and that with the other and the anywho, um, and and wanting that message to really being, you know, received or or palatable, um. And and then again, having the the courage to do so, to still want to be, to still feel like, okay, I'm a part of my community, or I'm a part of my family, or, but I guess I might just have to, I don't know, let go of, of that. I suppose I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't no, listen. I mean, I I can I can really like you're. Your passion and your sensitivity to to your community, I I get that. I mean, I really really understand that you want blacks to do better and you want things to improve and who doesn't right i mean yay fantastic what a great uh what a great what a great approach and it is tough you know it trust me white people are annoying as hell too <laughs> it comes to reason and evidence uh, it, it's a challenge right and um but if they're if the community as a whole is like you know big government and handouts and reparations and all that kind of stuff if that is sort of the black identity in in a lot of ways, and you're trying to sort of bring reason and evidence and facts and all of that kind of stuff to the table, and you can be rejected, and your facts and evidence can be rejected, right? Then that is really frustrating because you know that you have great things to say to the black community that could really be helpful, right? Really, really, really be helpful. You know, one of, and I've said this on the show before, Nicole, and I apologize for repeating it, but I feel like it can't be repeated often enough, right? So in 2012, the U.S. Census Bureau released a report studying the history of marriage in the United States. African-Americans aged 35 and older were more likely to be married than white Americans from 1890 until sometime around the 1960s. Right. Not only did they swap places during the 1960s, but in 1980, the number of never-married African-Americans began a staggering climb from about 10% to more than 25% by 2010. Yeah. Now, there is incarceration numbers and a decline in, in 1980 with sort of the drug and crack e epidemic and the sentencing, the tougher sentencing laws and so on. But, man... For now, what is it? Uh, out of wedlock births in African American community is seventy three percent or something like that, and I mean it's brutal. And and the the harm that this does at every level, I've gone into a bunch of different times, so people can uh, check that. I've got the truth about single motherhood and all that kind of stuff. But from eighteen ninety, African Americans aged thirty five and older are more likely to be married than white Americans. Eighteen ninety, it wasn't a paradise back then for African Americans. Far from it, right? Right. But if that can be recaptured, that dedication to the family. I mean, it's an old quote, and, and it's still powerful, though. Um, was it Walter Williams or, who said that uh, the welfare state has done what slavery couldn't do, what Jim Crow couldn't do, what segregation right. couldn't do, which is to destroy the black family? Yeah. And this focus on the solutions coming from the state is like an alcoholic thinking that the solution to his marital problems are at the bottom of the next bottle. Right. And, and of so, course, you want, you, want, you want to get that across. Yeah. How do you get it across when there is such an investment into a particular way of looking at things? 
if you can, I'll tell you that, pretty heroic. Yeah. <laughs> pretty damn heroic. <laughs> yes. I mean, because then, I mean, then I guess it really boils down to getting to the underneath of that philosophical discussion. And especially I'm thinking about the previous caller who talked about, you know, this idea of rights. And, and it's like, I have a right to housing and I have a right to this amount of food and this amount of clothes and and then it gets you know morphed and turned into something else i mean and and, and not that everyone is even necessarily you know abusive because i've you know also had folks who are like okay i'm on this now but i need to do better and i'm going to try to get a job and all that and so there's like two moms that i know who who did that who are who cut off the welfare and and, and got jobs for, thankfully um but that there's this such this attachment to being owed something and i sometimes it even gets wrapped up you know in the argument you know of slavery like black people were treated so horrific in america that we are now owed by the state um you know all these benefits and we are owed equal outcomes versus opportunities and you know things of that nature and i was reading um pedagogy of press i haven't finished it um, cuz i think he's kind of maybe like a socialist kind leaning mm -hmm. but he talks about um oh my goodness what's his name Paulo fair air but he talks about how the um the people group that was oppressed or is oppressed needs to deal in objective reality and if you don't deal in objective reality it just becomes my side versus his side and like this kind of free-for-all grabbing type of thing now, this is a terrible paraphrase but um but kind of the impression i got and and i and that I guess, I don't know, it just has to start, I guess maybe start there because I just don't think there's a fundamental understanding, and maybe this is partially our education system, of how the world actually works, of how economics works. I mean, you can say all day, like, we should all, everyone, free college and unicorns, Spartan rainbows everywhere. Um, but But it's just not feasible or sustainable and then when you ask for those things then they don't work and then well it's you know <laughs> everyone should get in the mba right how's that right. gonna work oh, exactly but like i would love like it is not fair i couldn't even jump when i was young right i'm a five four black woman who can't jump but i deserve to play yeah equal outcomes man <laughs> Exactly. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got nothing on me. I got me some springy steps, some slinkies in my shoes. I'm ready to go. Right. So, I mean, we all understand that, right? I mean, everybody gets a TV show. Everyone gets on the basketball team. Every, like, we all know that that would destroy television and basketball. And everyone gets a free college degree. Well, just means college standards are going to have to crash and it won't be worth the paper it's printed on. And there's this funny thing, too, which is. It's almost like, it's almost like a desire for vengeance, which is like, well, the government treated us really badly under slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely true. But now the government is going to make it all better. It's like, nope, same institution. <laughs> same, institution. same bad group of people with bad intent. Right. You know, I'm going to make the mafia do better this time. It's like, still the mafia. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> still the mafia. Not going to work. Not going to work. And letting go of that desire for vengeance. You know, that's a Christian thing. 
that right. I find quite powerful that I've really sort of been I've meditated on at various points in my life. Just ah, let it go. Right. You just you got to let go of that desire to 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 get vengeance and to get get people to pay, especially if it's if it's multigenerational. You know, because no, I mean, as we all know, it's an old argument, like no slave owner is alive now and and all that kind of stuff. And this idea that, well, we, we're going to get back what was taken from us by using the same agency and methodology, which is the government's power to initiate force, using the same agency and methodology that robbed us, we're now going to use for restitution. Ooh. Trying to find a way to let go of that is a real challenge. That's so true. And I, and that's, and so I, so I, um, a Christian and it was one of those things that, that, that letting go of vengeance that even started on a personal level. And, and I think as a whole, something worth, uh, that everyone who's maybe had like childhood trauma or things like going through, but I, and then maybe this is even a kind of a weird connection to another caller. Um, I think not another caller, another interview that you had before with um, the other black guy. I'm trying, I can't remember his name, but you know, I had fatherhood issues or father issues. And, and so my, my parents are divorced when I was, you know, really young, but it was like, not civil at all, like violent, crazy, terrible, horrendous, and all that. Um, and then, and then my father in general just had a lot of other anger issues, whatnot, just very um, looming, leering type of figure. And I just had this whole identity crisis um, as as a result. And so I went like headlong. So I've been on like, I guess the, maybe the previous black lives matter. I'm not sure. I guess what you call it, but I was on this whole, like back to Africa thing. Once I got out of the house and I was like, I'm going to find my roots. I'm going to find out who I am <laughs> and like get in and like got all into um, this perverted version of like, I guess, black nationalism that really made everyone else like the enemy and there's that moral kind of superiority that comes with being a victim and saying you know like I deserve I'm owed on this I'm that 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 you kind of get and after becoming a Christian and really having to like examine all that um you know aspect of of what was going on inside of me when I got that I was really able to make peace, not just with, um, you know, I guess just my personal history, but I guess kind of the history uh, as a whole. And, and I guess like a, an internal um, uh, kind of thing, because I, I have younger siblings who are like much younger than me because of my dad and my stepmother, but who are kind of going through, you know, their, their own, um, journey in that regard and um and one of whom is also kind of falling into like the 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 I guess the perverted black nationalism uh aspect and so I'm trying to like and I'm sorry to interrupt but the black nationalism is the idea that blacks would get their own land their own country is that right? right? That we should just segregate, be our own people, get our own stuff, white people are. But then there's also that underlying theme of, you know, everyone agrees white people are devils and, you know, 
deal with white people and all that stuff. Or I've, I've had my whitey limit for the day and, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, I don't, I don't actually know. <laughs> oh, no, you don't know. Sorry. I, I, I absolutely, uh, I, uh, I, perfectly, <laughs> I, I, I accept it. And, but no, go on. I've got, I've got a question or two, but, but please go on with, with what you're saying. Yeah. And so I'm trying to draw them back from that too. Um, but, and so I don't know, I guess, and, and I'm trying to think of where to, to even land here, but. Well, let me, okay. Then if, if you gather your thoughts there, let me just ask you a, a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really sorry, like heart to heart, incredibly sorry for the aggression that you experienced and, and witnessed it with your father. That's very scary stuff. And I'm, yeah, I feel that coming through and I'm, I just, I'm very sorry for, for all of that. That is, there's harsh stuff to live through. But here's the thing that is always interesting to me, which is the person who scared you, the person who was alarming to you, was a black man, right? Your father. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked about this with the Colin Kaepernick video a while back ago, but it's like, how does that, is there a way that, Nicole, that that shifts from your father to it seems like it shifts almost from your father to white people. You know, the problem was not this scary, dangerous guy in my house. The problem is white people. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a? It's not. It's not the most obvious thing for for it to displace to, if that makes sense. Right, and it's and it's kind of a weird one too. I think um, what happens, is, at least in my case, is that um, I had all my you know childhood baggage and. When I went off to college, I wanted to be this new person, find myself, and all that. And so, I um, uh, took a um, like an like a African like history type class and all that. And you meet people and you start socializing and and you tend to get sucked into you know this is who you are and this is who you belong to. These are your enemies. These people are, you know, the problem. And we are champions and, you know, all that. And, like, these overcomers and that whole sort of thing. And so um, so I think part of it is because of that fracture of, of not feeling connected that you kind of go to, hmm, well, there's one thing I do know. The color of my skin. <laughs> let's see, right. you know. Let's see what's what's up with that. And um, and um, and I think unfortunately, what the sad part is is in the college space when you you know kind of get out of your house and, and you, you go to that environment. Um, it's it's not really an environment to kind of help you deal with um, with those two things separately right it just it's like oh you realize you're black we realize you're black let me tell you all the things that go along with being black and and what that means in this culture and because the college campuses are so leftist dominant um i mean even the counseling is is you know very you know skewed i i remember um just talking to a counselor about some experiences i had with with an ex-boyfriend and they tried to it, well, they did convince me at the time, and, and now I have a better perspective on it, but they tried to, they, they told me that, you know, uh, I had was statutory raped and that he was a bad guy. And, you know, so, I mean, I got, like, all of it. Like, I got the feminism, the 
black stuff. The it was just all this big bad mush. Um, and so when I got out of it, and it's compelling, right? And it's compelling. It's fair. It's really compelling. It gives you it gives you structure. It gives you mythology. It gives you enemies. It gives you victimhood. It gives you a passion. It gives you a goal. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of structure in that. If if I understand it correctly. Yes, I mean it's a whole package, and you're like, right. great. I can take this, I can work with this, and I get this is like my foundation and my rock now. I didn't have one before. And you have companions. And I have companions. Right. You have people who are going to work with you, fight the good fight, and, and make a better world for for groups. And, and, you know, of course, the price for that is you can't really question stuff. <laughs> right. Other than that, it's like, boom, you know, you've got a whole group, right? Right. And, and I even compare it to, um, though, I mean, maybe an extreme comparison but when i think about you know like the crips and the bloods and the gangs and the cliques and you know all that um it's to it fills this void this vacuum for identity connection um and and i guess some value because you because you feel like you're a part of something that now in the other sense in the gang sense i guess for you know negative but i mean it's it's very similar. Uh, and so no, and I, 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 res I respect the power of that. We really do. I mean, we all need a narrative. We all need a story. We all need something that makes our lives not just these empty, repetitive days, but gives us a bigger sense of purpose and perspective. And um, it sounds like you landed in a lot better place, Nicole, with Christianity <laughs> than you did with some of this stuff, at least in the long run. Yes. I mean, and because um, <laughs> I know... You know, because even with that, I was like, oh, should I say I'm a Christian? Because I know you're atheist. But I know, I know we can have honest conversations here because I do uh, respect your position and your argument. <laughs> Did you really think that was going to be the controversial part of our conversation? <laughs> Did, is that what you were, that's you really, oh my goodness, well, the atheism thing. No, I mean, as I've said, uh, I have a massive amount of additional respect for Christianity these days, uh, mostly because of really nice Christians like you. But uh, no, it's, uh, that's totally fine to chat about. Yeah. Um, and that was something that, Really, I mean, that really kind of reframed um, my a sense of morality because in in those movements, you know, the means justify the ends, right? The there is no right or long as long as we get our ideology manifested. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's a lefty thing. There, there are no standards other than success. And so once it flipped to, you know, no, there is, <laughs> there is right and wrong before the end, right? right. It, it just, um, and, you know, and it takes some level of, you know, humility, you know, across the board. I mean, it's especially intellectual humility to be like, oh, wow, I spent all this money <laughs> and now I have to like undo all my... <laughs> All my training and go to the library and and read some something else, but and um, just just out of curiosity, and it's a big curiosity, so hopefully indulge me. But what was the moment where you felt the call to Jesus rather than Malcolm X or you know, whatever? <laughs> I mean, where where was 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 it a, was it a slow thing? Was it like a bomb? Was it a beam of sunlight hitting hitting you while you were napping? Like what? What happened to to cause this kind of? It's a huge transition, and it's fascinating to me because I mean I remember my big transitions in life, and I'm always curious to call how other people make that switch. Well, it was the best of both. So I, 
uh, started off, it started off slow. I had met this young woman who, uh, through dance, through a dance class we had to take. And we were talking, we found out we both wrote poetry. So I was like, oh, well, we should, like, have a poetry session. And so I go first, and, like, all of my poetry is, like, dark and depressive and, like, Rachel, you know, all that. And so she, so I like finished and she's like, wow, that's great use of language, you know, right? But then she goes and it's like about all these virtues and love and be, and then I start feeling like really embarrassed, right? And so, um, but she was a Christian. And so that's kind of where she got that from. So, oh, was she nice too? And she those, was, those nice, those nice Christians messing up all my prejudice. Right. You know, they're just like, damn it, people, can't you just be a little meaner? You're really, really messing with my calibration here. <laughs> my compass is spinning. I don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, this relentless positivity and niceness of some of these Christians. It's like this gravity well. It's like, you know, it's like those. You ever see those those little? Um, they're like simulators in science, and you roll a coin, and it's supposed to be a black hole. So blah, 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 it goes down this little hole after a while. That's what the nice Christians are. It's like irresistible. And fight the gravity well of niceness. <laughs> well, and because that was because I was very um, I, I, before I wouldn't necessarily call myself an atheist. Like I just was angry at God for <laughs> you know that was probably a bit. And so we ended up having you know different conversations over time, and then um, that summer I went to LA for an internship, and I had started kind of being wooed a little bit but right before then I was like you know bump it I'm still angry I'm just angry and I went to LA and was just kind of like this big well of hedonism and then one day it was just like what am I doing I'm just having a grown-up temper tantrum so I decided to end my internship and take summer classes in philosophy and then by the end of that class I went kind of back to my room and so this is like maybe the Paul bright light kind of thing but I just started yelling and <laughs> screaming I was like cursing at God and all that stuff and whatnot and then it was like I just had this like epiphany moment it was like the strange just, just like Jesus <laughs> and and I got all this revelation on where my anger and hostility was coming from. And then all this stuff about that I was learning about love and virtue was like flooding in and everything else. And so, and I just started crying and I was just weeping and, and I was just like a broken person. I was like, you know what? I kind of have two choices right now. And it, and the choices weren't even like a heaven and hell sort of thing. It was just, you know, I can, um, you know, live my life in relationship with God, you know, understanding, you know, truth, beauty, and goodness, you know, all that sort of thing, and getting back the pieces of my life together, and it's not the other, or I can live my life without God, and just be this, like, crazy person who thinks they know everything, and I really don't, but you know you don't, but then you're just going to decide to just, I'm going to just keep pretending anyway, like Jesse Jackson. Then who's no, let me stop. <laughs> everyone, but Nicole, everyone is supposed to crack and everyone is supposed to break. That's how the light gets in. <laughs> right. Right. It's true. Yeah. I mean, we're all raised in these distorted fashions with propaganda and nonsense and lies and misdirections, and sometimes with people who have the very best of intentions. But uh, we're all, and, and to break out of that distorted mind trap, we all have to break. We all have to crack. 
And that's how the bird gets out of the egg. And that's how the light gets in. Um, we're all supposed to break. And people spend a lot of their lives resisting being broken, resisting cracking, because there's the arrogance that this right. is how I'm supposed to be. This is the shape of the world. Uh, I am a mere shadow cast by the tree of knowledge. I can't change it. And then we crack and then we break and then we fly. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And, like, and I will certainly, uh, I will thank that woman, you know, because I've, I mean, so much enjoying this conversation, which I'm, I'm kind of thinking we may not have had <laughs> if you hadn't made this kind of transition. Okay. Um, or, or I guess it would have been quite a different conversation. A very different conversation. So I, you know, I appreciate this revelation uh, for the opportunity it gives for us to speak as well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And taking the time to, to answer my question. I know we kind of evolved since then, but I think, um, taking that humility and just being like, you know what, I kind of a second epiphany of, you know, it really, you know, what's the, the, I guess, kind of the cost when, you know, ratio and the cost is that if I, if I don't say anything, nothing is going to change. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe some people won't talk to me anymore and this and that and the other, but at least there might be someone else who might, get that epiphany too. When you decide to take that, you know, the thorny road, the narrow road, the high path of virtue, it, it is a trapeze act at times. Look, within, without a net, it feels like. And it sounds like you have like a very powerful soul and a, and a very deep and abiding desire to make the world a better place. Mm. And there are the majority of people this is just a rant. This is not proof. This is just my thoughts. But Nicole, there's a majority of people who are kind of designed to get along with people and to not make a lot of waves and to kind of just be pulled along like a water skier behind the wake of the general opinions of those around them. And, and I don't know that there's much that can be done about that. I don't think that there is. Mm-hmm. But there are people who... I could say I put here and whether it's genetics or God or whatever, it doesn't hugely matter, but we're here to change the conversation, to change the direction, to turn the wheel on the boat. And that is going to come at a cost because if it was easy, everybody would do it. The rewards are very clear that if you affect the world in a positive way, you can go to your grave with a blissful smile on your face. And you can of course float onto an afterlife. (laughs) I may envy if I'm wrong. But uh, you you can have a, a life of power and depth and meaning. I never go to bed sitting there saying, well, what did I really do today? I never, that never happens to me. I sometimes go to bed thinking I could have done a little more, but that's all right. That's good. It's good to have that kind of Batman repelling hook over the wall kind of ambition. But I never worry about the meaning of my life. I never worry about, I never have any concerns about the positive effect of my life. It's not always perfect, of course, right? But but those existential questions never arise in me. I never feel lonely. Uh, I never feel bereft of purpose. I never feel that I'm not making a difference. I never feel extraneous to the world. I feel incredibly central to the forward thrust to a better place. And the benefits are, are clear, right? You, you may be a person for the ages. You may be a person who is going to uh, change the course of history. You may be a, a person who's going to change the course of 50 people's lives or 25 people's lives, which is a huge thing. And the, the benefits are very clear. The costs 
are also very clear, which is why we hesitate before that leap and the flapping as we fall, hoping that feathers are going to grow <laughs> before we make that wily coyote puff of dirt on the bottom of the canyon, right? But the rewards are clear. The risks are clear. And the risks are fundamentally our personal relationships that are historical. And I don't know any way around that. I've spoken about this off and on for years in this show. I don't know any way around this, that if you're going to strive for truth and for greatness, and greatness is not like a personal vanity kind of greatness, but just greatness in terms of having an effect and jolting people out of unthinking into thinking, right? Because your purpose, Nicole, is not to tell people what to think, I would assume, but to stimulate them with information and get them to think for themselves. Right. You know, how do we know how do we know that the Democrats are great for our community? The numbers seem to show otherwise. And the Democrats were not great for our community in the past, right? The, the KKK was a military arm of the Democrat right. Party. They resisted civil rights. They resisted uh, desegregation. They resisted the end of Jim Crow. They resisted the new civil rights uh, in, in the 60s. They they were not great. I mean, God damn it, Hillary Clinton's mentor was Robert Byrd, longtime member of the KKK. Which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 how do we know? And, and trying to get people to be humble. You know, I mean, this, the reason I keep doing this show is I'm so gloriously wrong. A lot of times, you know, like I'm just, and I, how many times I say, oh, I had this perspective, turns out I had to change it because I got this information or this fact or this new thing or whatever, right? Right. And being gloriously wrong and self-correcting is a great public spectacle. And I don't know, oh, okay, a few people I'm sure have, quote, lost respect for me for changing course, you know, it's like, I don't know. What do you do when you get new information? Stay exactly the same. What do you get when you get better arguments? Reject them completely? Sorry, I sail with the wind. I don't just <laughs> I'm not a submarine, you know, just like with the everything crazy glued, the steering shift. And so, so the personal relationships are a challenge because people know you as who you are and who you were and how you grew up. And they've, you've conditioned them and they've conditioned you to have a certain kind of relationship. But if you can be out there saying, okay, black people in America have not done very well under Obama, and in some ways they've done pretty disastrously. Right. And these riots that, that happen with very sketchy information, not great mm. for the community and not great for public perception of the community. Right. And marriage, commitment, fatherhood, um, pair bonding, right. monogamy, these used to be way better when blacks had it way worse in society. Yeah. And if you, I mean, I'm not sort of trying to give you any kind of speech, but, you know, if you can get some, some ideas across and the idea of finding a way, finding a way to let go of the anger. And this is, this is not a black white thing. This is just a human thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you've listened to this show at all, you know, I've had some stuff to be angry about, particularly in my past, in my childhood. And I could keep circling that drain and I could keep staring at this hellish blood-soaked disco ball of my early personal history and I could consume me. And then what? Then I never get to grow up. I never get to leave that ancestral home. I never get to be myself. I never get to look forward because I'm always looking back. 
I never get to chart my own course because I'm being blown by what happened decades ago or centuries ago for some. And finding a way to let go of that, you know, there's a way of letting go of the anger without pretending it didn't happen. Right. There's a way of letting go of the anger without blanket forgiveness. And as you know, this is a Christian teaching, you let go of the anger, and Jesse Peterson is fantastic on this stuff, you let go of the anger so that you can be free and happy in the present. Mm. Because being angry at the past means fearing the future, a future of more anger, of more resentment, of more escalation. It's never being free of the past to remain staring at it and glaring daggers at it and thinking about the wrongs and the injustices as the fire in the hearth of your heart grows cold and is covered with ash and footprints of ancient enemies long dealt with. And I don't know the answer as to what gets people to that click moment where they say staring into the black moored tunnel of past injustice cannot be our eternal future. Right. I don't know what gets people to that, but you've done it. And you've become, you know, I mean, I hope you'll listen back to this. I mean, delightful person to chat with, very positive, great energy, great positivity. You've done that. <laughs> Thank you. And because you've done that, and more than just a personal, I mean, you had an ideological, not just a personal, but an ideological commitment to the perspectives that you were engaging with in, in university and through your internship, right? I mean, it was yeah. I, ideology is, is in some ways harder to overcome than personal history because at least personal history recedes in the rear view. Ideology is about the future and it <laughs> right. races ahead of you and makes the whole world into an image of itself and you can't get free of it then. At least the past recedes. Ideology creates the future for you. So if you've been able to do that, figuring out how you did it and figuring out how to engage people who are really angry and really resentful and not without reason. That's the tough part is no one can right. say, oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation. No. <laughs> Who cares? Let it go. Right? Who cares, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not, that's not reasonable, yeah. right? right? But getting people to understand that the same agency that did that was the government. The government, the government did that to blacks. And it wasn't white people as a whole, as you know, like only a couple of percentage point of Southerners owned slaves and white people hated having to go on slave catching missions unpaid. And it was terrible, right? Everybody's enslaved by the government and certainly blacks were the most enslaved and it was horrible, horrible. But running back to the agency of the state to try and gain justice for the prior injustices of the state. I don't know. It's the question, and this is a harsh way to put it. But it's a question of you're standing at the edge of the plantation and you can head for freedom or you can go back and you right. can beat up the slave owner. Right. Which do, you, which do you choose? Which do you choose? You're standing right there on the edge. You know you can get to the Underground Railway. You can get to Canada. You can go and be free. There are other people who've made it. There are people who will help you, white and black, all along the way. You can get to a free and beautiful place. Okay, a little cold, but free. Right. <laughs> but free. <laughs> or you can go back to beat up the plantation owner, right. and probably get caught. Right. And, and if there's a way to get that across in some manner that's motivating, 
I mean, boy, you're the person to do it, if anyone. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the compliment. I'm like thinking of that task, like, oh, like, I don't know, like finding, like, I know three or four other people, um, go, and those are both, most of the were the people who went down kind of with us, um, who beat that, you know, kind of drum and we, you know, sit around scratching our heads all day, like, what, what, what more, you know? can we do and, and what more because it almost feels like this weird tipping point where 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 if Hillary you know is president it's just going to go even more to the you know extreme and, and it's going to be terrible for blacks in particular yeah. you know I'm sorry to interrupt but the, I just read the study today that the, the immigration pouring into America has cost American workers $500 billion a year in lost wages. Mm -hmm. And because the immigrants tend to be low skilled and because the blacks tend to be lower skilled, there is that direct competition. I mean, right. a vote for Hillary, oh God, I mean, of all the things, I mean, it, it, I believe it's going to be a complete disaster mm -hmm. for the black community and, and relatively quickly too. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Lord, I hope so. But I really think it's going to be a disaster, and I think it's going to be now or never as far as uh, being able to turn some of this stuff around. Yeah, agree. Agree. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks uh, very much for calling in. Uh, if there's anything that you end up doing uh, that you, you know, we can help publicize or, or help get the word out to, we can, uh, yeah, I certainly would be, be very happy to, uh, you, you taking on some, some very, very powerful stuff, and I, I certainly wish you the very best with what you're doing, and I hope you all come back and let us know how it goes. Oh, yes, most certainly. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, uh, Nicole. Thanks, everyone, for calling in tonight. It's a great, great pleasure to have these conversations with everyone. It is a wonderful part of my week. And uh, just a reminder, please, please, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out uh, the show. We need your help more than ever in these very trying and exciting and world-changing times. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us uh, with the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Use our affiliate link. Always sounds a little cheesy, but it's necessary. Use our affiliate link, fdrurl.com slash Amazon. If you're watching videos uh, or, you know, like, share, subscribe, do all of that kind of good stuff. And thanks, everyone, so much for the best life in the world. I'll talk to you soon.